your girlfriend, you take care of her. Hello, screwheads, and welcome back to The Pod and the Pendulum, the show that covers horror movie franchises, one movie in one episode at a time. I'm your host, Mike Snoonian, joined once again by my fantastic co-host, Lindsay Travis. Lindsay, welcome back. It's been a month. I know. I feel like it's been so long. It has been. It's been <laughs> four weeks. Yeah. So. Yeah, I'm... I was like, oh, Wednesday, I actually have something in the calendar for tonight. It was a, uh, yeah, month Excellent. away. Excellent. So after a couple of months of tackling the extreme and often dank and depressing world of French horror, need a bit of a reprieve. We need a little bit of a rest, a little bit of relaxation. We need to get away from the hustle and the bustle and the grind of the everyday world. We've packed the weekend travel kit, gotten behind the wheel of the old jalopy, and we're taking the back roads to a little cabin in the middle of the woods. What could possibly go wrong as we set out to break down the Evil Dead franchise? I love that intro. I don't know if it takes the steam out of it that I just called out how much I loved it, but that was really mm -hmm. fun. <laughs> I, okay, that I am all about making my ego 
bigger. Yes. You know? Like, absolutely. Um, we just did like narcissism in my other show. And I kept telling listeners how lucky they were to hear me talk about narcissism and That's how funny. it was the best. So yeah, no, I'm excited. Like this is one of my favorite franchises. Um, I'm actually going to put like an evil dead poster behind my door in the school counseling office because no one in administration will ever see it. And it'll feel like I'm putting one over on people. So oh, I'm excited about that. But we have a guest. This week's guest is the author of the recently released Score to Death 2, More Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers. To follow up to the first book of the same name, he is the co-host of the podcast Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers and an inductee to the New York Blues Hall of Fame. He joined us way back when for our uh, look back on A Nightmare on Elm Street. So let's welcome back Jay Blake for sharing to the show. How are we doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. I too I'm am a very huge excited. Dead fan. So I, you know, I know we tried to reconnect when we were doing. I think it was Final Destination, um, and I think at the time, like the book was like really hard to get, right? Yeah, but there was issues when it came out, uh, <clears throat> it getting on Amazon and whatnot. Yeah. And it was just like because of COVID and all the things that were going on, mm-hmm. with shipping and post office and whatnot. But now it is available. It's Excellent. available on Amazon, it's available other places, and it's available at scoretodeath.com. Excellent. And signed copies? Sure. I'll sign them. Signed by you or just <laughs> random people? It doesn't have to be you. I mean, just get signed. I just take you know, whoever's, whoever's on the whoever. street on my way to the post office. Excellent. You can even sign your own. Excellent. That's true. Excellent. All right. So I want to start tonight by asking, like, what is, what was everybody's introduction to the first Evil Dead movie? And I guess, like, we'll start with you. Like, what was your first time experiencing, like, Raimi's? Yeah, I was thinking about that because I don't really remember it. I mean, it wasn't that I was really young. I know I didn't see it until my late teens. I actually mm-hmm. saw Army of Darkness first. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I saw that first is because I was at a party and there was another movie on and I didn't know what it was. And so for like years, I would be like, does anybody know this movie? There's Chainsaw Fight. And then there's these little dudes. And everybody's like, oh, that's Army of Darkness. So I saw Army of Darkness. I was like, no, that's not it. It ended up being Fantasm too. But <coughs> it, it now I want to know what movie you were thinking of. <coughs> it was fa- it was Phantasm 2, oh. which I later discovered. <laughs> okay. <coughs> and uh, But when I saw Army of Darkness, I was a huge Briscoe County fan. So I was I loved Bruce Campbell way before I even knew anything about Evil mm-hmm. Dead, um, and then so either in my late high school or early or like first year of college I saw uh, Evil Dead for the first time. I do remember that um, my freshman year of college, the like student union would have like a film series once a month. They'd show a sixteen millimeter print or something, and they showed Evil Dead, and that was a big deal. Uh, cool. But I don't think that was the first time I saw. It. But uh, okay. yeah, I loved it instantly. I I was in film school and I wrote a paper about the Evil Dead movies. <laughs> so uh, that's kind of, like I said, I don't remember exactly, but it's pinpoint to my late teens. This, I, you know, I think we'll, we'll probably talk a lot about it at the end when we talk about the legacy. But to me, this feels like the movie that if you're an aspiring independent filmmaker and a fan of horror movies, it is like the one, it feels like the most like one of us type of movies. And it feels like the blueprint. Yeah. Of the biggest success story. Um, Lindsay, how about yourself? 
Um, I was relatively late to it, I will say. Like, I always knew about the Evil Dead movies and knew there was something <laughs> I would probably be interested in. Um, and, like, you know, I knew who Sam Raimi was because of Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. I was a massive Spider-Man fan. I still am, but it was, like, the peak of my Spider-Man fandom was when those movies were coming out. So mm-hmm. I, like, knew Raimi and was very, very obsessed. So, and I watched them pretty late. And um, I watched them with my best friends, Aaron. And we watched the first one. And we were like, okay, you know, that's okay. And then we watched the second one right after. And then we were like, oh, like I get it. And then Mm -hmm. fell in love with the first one. It's like, we watched them. It was either two nights in a row or I'm pretty sure it was like the same Sunday afternoon. And it was like, oh. And then the second one, we were like, oh, this as a franchise is unbelievable. And Mm -hmm. like, it immediately became like our thing. Like we go to like screenings every time we can. We went to the musical together. We like- any evil dead thing we can find the two of us are like yeah Absolutely. let's do it <laughs> it definitely has inspired some of the most rabid fandom i mm. think and honestly the kind of fandom like you don't really no one ever says anything bad about evil dead fans you know what i mean like they yeah. seem like much more well adjusted than that they restore the, <laughs> They're the res- nicest fandom. <laughs> you know that restore like the snyderverse yeah. fandom like it's a polar opposite of what's going on yeah not Um, not playing the same game what about you so for me you know what's interesting is i feel like i've saw the first evil dead movie last and i feel Mm -hmm. like i bought it on dvd when anchor bay did their like first spent like two or three disc special edition it was the one that came with the um ladies of evil dead uh like mini documentary in there and i think there was like a widescreen and then like original format version of the movie but my first encountering i remember reading of fangoria at my grandmother's house and i remember like sitting in the reclining chair and i had to be in like middle school because it was right around the time that evil dead 2 was coming out and seeing the advert for it with the skull and seeing the double r rating and like kid me being like what is double r and how do I sneak in to see this movie? And I think it was still a while before I could see it. But I saw Army of Darkness and then saw Evil Dead 2. And then didn't, you know, and, and I thought, oh, like the first one must be a comedy. And then like seeing the first movie and being like, nope, this is no comedy. <laughs> like mm-hmm. this is going for a wildly different tone um, and completely like, I think it's my favorite of the three when all is said and done. Okay. So I just love the tone it goes for. And my favorite memory of seeing this movie is over the summer, the drive-in near us did Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2. And I took my 10-year-old with me, we packed up the car, um, got a bunch of snacks. And she actually, because it was very, very late, like fell asleep partway through Evil Dead 2 because it was close to midnight. But like her getting to experience the first Evil Dead movie with dad at a pack drive and I'm like this is like one of those parenting experiences yeah like you're a cool dad (laughs) I really am I really can I just bring her in so you can because like now that she's almost 11 sometimes she forgets that so oh that's cool sometimes pretty cool so I love this movie and I'm really excited to talk about it with you guys and our listeners today so am I the only one of us that first experienced it on crappy VHS because that was probably yeah, mine yeah, was, was the, probably was the way to do it. <laughs> yeah, mine was either, I probably like rented it, like on like on demand. Like that's how recently I saw it for the wow. first time. Okay. Excellent. Well, 
Yeah, I must have rented it mm-hmm. or like streamed it. Like it was relatively recent. Mm-hmm. Um, although, I mean, we've had VOD for a really long time. I don't well, like, know like that years, reason. 10, 15 yeah, years. yeah, yeah. This was yeah. definitely one of those movies that when they like announced a 4K version of it, which I did watch uh, for this, but I was like, why? Yeah. <laughs> why? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, it's like this and Texas Chainsaw Massacre are two movies that have 4K uh, like releases. And I'm like, why? but those movies, why? the worse they look, the better they are. Yeah. Yeah. That, my copies I... are surprising no one Snapcase mm-hmm. DVDs. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. I think like right now, like I actually bought, like they had Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2 on Voodoo and HD for like five bucks, oh, like a two pack. I'm like, I'll buy that. Um, yeah. But I think like my DVDs, like all of my DVDs have been put in slip covers and like ripped to a hard drive. And Smart. literally my, not my Blu-rays, but my DVDs are in a milk crate with like 500 of them just randomly stacked at this point. So whenever I need to find one, which is rare, I have to like kind of like dig through everything. Yeah, I'm terrible. Um, no, I love that. I need to do that. I would free up like 100 square feet. Beautiful. Yeah, I... <sighs> I will say this, like one of our listeners, um, James uh, from Planet of Terror posted, like he just got some woodworking done and he has like this old media room and he has like the video store selection and he has all these VHSs and it looks like a, looks like your mom and pa like video store. And it's like the most gorgeous thing. And I sit in awe of it right now. So I take that. All right. So one of the things I like to do yeah, you're right. I don't. I looked at the 4K for a hot minute, and I'm like, if there are bonus features, I'll order it. But mm-hmm. I'm like, there's nothing why? on it. Yeah, just there's the, literally just the commentary. New transfer. That's it. And I'm like, eh. Yeah. Well, this it. like Evil Dead and Halloween are like the evergreens, you know. And like, yeah. I certainly, I've owned like every version of Halloween mm-hmm. that there's been. And Evil Dead for a long time, I had like crappy VHS. Then I had mm-hmm. like the clamshell, like Anchor Bay VHS. Then I had like the crappy DVD. And then I had like the Book of the Dead latex book. Yes. Yep. <laughs> At yeah, some point was, you got to say, how many, <laughs> how many copies do I need? <laughs> well, that's like, I probably, I know I've said this on the podcast before, but it's like my like thing that will get me kicked off film Twitter is like, I just don't care. Like I'll buy your old used crappy copies all day long. Mm-hmm. So I like don't have any of those collections, but I feel like this year, maybe because I'm like at home and looking for like retail therapy. Anytime there's like some new fancy release of a movie I like, I'm like, yeah, where's the wait list? Where can mm-hmm. I, I need to set an alarm to get it. Like they're going to start to get me now. Yeah. But- I feel like I could probably have bought a second property if it wasn't for like Screen Factory. In the- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. One day I will tell everybody my feelings about Mondo. Um, I think I have decidedly uh-huh. like negative feelings about that brand and I think what they do. Um, so yeah, we'll share those one day. So. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So let's talk, you know, one of the things I like to do um, is kind of like kind of dive into the history of the movie itself. And I think that like this particular movie really warrants it because I think like more so than the actual movie itself, the backstory of how this thing actually came to be is so fascinating. Mm -hmm. Um, Because what you have here are two friends from childhood um, Sam Raimi, Bruce Campbell, growing up in like the suburbs of Detroit, Michigan, um, meeting in high school, both of them wanting to be filmmakers or in Bruce's case, be an actor, like someone who from like a really young age was going to acting school and then eventually 
completing the trio in college with like Rob Tappert, who would, they would go on to form Renaissance pictures. But um, yeah, this is just really the story of like three dudes that were like great friends making Super 8 movies together in the 70s that went on to make one of the, some of the most beloved works of cinema in the past 40 years. Yeah, well, this is like the American dream. You know, this is like mm -hmm. the Hollywood. This is like those stories of like, the band, the garage band of high school kids that hit it big, you know, but yeah. it's like the film version of that. Mm -hmm. And even in the horror genre, even though there were so many low budget horror movies, I mean, there's not even this much detail about like the making of Night of the Living Dead, mm -hmm. uh, but like, there's just, there's, they, they, they're all very verbal and I can't, they've read cables written a book. And mm -hmm. so it's well documented, but it is like this wonderful, like success yeah. story and it's also like an amazing story of perseverance mm -hmm. and just like chutzpah <laughs> like yeah. these guys did not have they they didn't know that they shouldn't do it and they didn't know that right. they should quit and so right. they just succeeded and it's amazing yeah i mean exactly that <laughs> like, <laughs> they, like, they yeah didn't, they didn't take no for an answer at any given point. I was watching, uh, and actually we'll get to it as we get into like the financing of the movie, but one of like the details I really love when they talk about like making their Super 8 movies was how much like Sam and his older brother Ivan, who was a doctor, but would go on to like write the Spider-Man movies with Sam. I think the first two in particular. Dark um, Man too, maybe. Dark Man as well, but that's quite a resume. Like, I'm a doctor, I save lives, and also I wrote Spider-Man. <laughs> like, I, that would be... My God. Quite the resume at that point. Yeah. Um, they talk in their, in the book, The uh, Evil Dead Companion, uh, written by Bill Warren, just a phenomenal read, how much they loved torturing Ted Raimi. Um, mm -hmm. some of the best stories in that book are they basically would they would literally go to their dad and be like dad is it okay if we like torture ted for a little bit and dad would be half paying attention like watching the you know tigers and tv and be like yeah just do whatever you want just leave me alone <laughs> yeah. and they would like tie him to a chair and do like water torture on him for hours yeah. until he would scream um and just like beat the bag out of him as you know any good big brothers kind of like do and now to, he's legendary actor ted Raimi. so ted Raimi, legendary <laughs> actor super stud in the candy man movie and yeah so um their work there and as they were doing their super eights like if you ever go back and watch any like heavily influenced by the three stooges i mean like that's what really jumps out uh, and we'll talk about like a specific short with the evil dead um when we get talk a little bit more about the Stooges, but what's really interesting is like both Raimi and Campbell professed to not really be horror movie fans. Like mm -hmm. Raimi was straight up scared of them and Campbell found them really upsetting. And yet that's what they're both best known for, but they avoided it like the plague is like teenagers. Yeah. It's bizarre. It's funny because I feel like horror um, always feels like, it's the place where the, you know, people with only a few bucks and a dream go. And we have so many horror movies that have like come from nothing. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't, I mean, Evil Dead in no way was the first, but I always feel like it's the one you go back to. Like I always compare Saw to Evil Dead mm -hmm. because it really was a couple of guys with an idea, no money, who made a short as a proof of concept and then ended up creating a bunch of camera tricks to make scares for no money. Um, 
And I feel like that's really what they did. I don't think that horror was the only place that you can go in that situation, but I do feel like you hear so many stories of those. Mm-hmm. Well, horror, horror is horror like makers. notoriously one of those genres where you don't have to spend a lot of money and you can make money. I think it just goes to show the fact that they weren't really horror fans just goes to show like the practical sense that they had. And I think you see it in the film and, you know, later when we talk more about like the actual making of the building of gear and the, you know, and and the vision that Rainey had, it just, I mean, they were, I mean, for a couple of like guys in their late teens or early twenties, I mean, they really did kind of have that. (laughs) Yeah. But they had like the sense to think about it and it wasn't like they, in a sense, yes, they did just dive into the deep end, but but it's like they dove into the deep end with like life preservers. Like they knew yeah. they knew it was yeah. dangerous, but they had a plan. And I right. think that's you know it's one of like the admirable admirable things about about them. But I think it's one of those things where like there were literally like hundreds of thousands of us as kids that went, ran around with like mom and dad's like video recorder re- video recorder and we made our own movies um i know like jamie blanks the director of urban legend and um valentine uh, both of which we've discussed on the show and on the patreon like he has a fantastic episodes mm-hmm. patreon folks two dollars patreon download valentine fantastic episode yeah it's a good episode um the they would go ahead. I would say it's a great episode. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah, Valentine F. Yeah, for sure. It stands out. It really stands <laughs> and, out. And Jamie is like one of the nicest guys ever. So yeah. Oh, flex. But yeah. As flex. a kid, like he would like get the VHS camcorder and just make horror movies in the backyard, mm-hmm. you know, with his friends over and over. And like Sam Raimi like made, and you watch them like these really like stooges, but also like, jerry lewis and dean martin inspired comedies they had this really like sense of physicality to them there was a lot of verbal gags that with go with them and even like as a teenager you could tell that there was like more than just picking up a camera and pointing it at friends and goofing off like he had a real sense of like pacing and storytelling and how to deliver a joke and like comedy and horror are very similar in that regard and it's all about the setup and then delivering a big payoff at the end. So he's able to kind of like take those comic instincts and then transfer them to horror. But the other thing I think that set him apart is not only would they film these movies, but they would charge their friends to see them. So he talks about it in high school, like he would charge his buddies a quarter to gather in the living room and like watch them. But once um, Raimi goes to, well, once uh, I think Raimi's older brother, uh, Ivan is in college. He's rooming with Robert Tappert, and like Sam would go and visit him there in school. And they both found really quickly, like, "Hey, we all we want to make movies." And at the time, like Bruce Campbell, he's like, "I did a semester of acting school, but I had done so much stage work and commercial work, and so much before that that like I was already like way like these they were so far behind what I already knew how to do that is like why am I paying for this?" Uh, but Ramey and Tappert get together they find that they can rent the auditorium at school for like pennies on the dollar and they start cranking out these eight millimeter movies and they start charging like a buck ahead for students to go see them and they're like we're making you know not a ton of money but we're making some real money on these movies 
why don't we make a feature film? Mm-hmm. And once they decide to do that, like like you're saying, like they're like, well, what kind of movie can we do? And they're like, well, Bam talks about going to drive-ins and seeing what kind of movies we're playing. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Hills Have Eyes, Last House on the Left, and then a lot of lesser movies. He's like, these places are packed. They're making money. And we can make a better movie than this. Like that's his quote. It's like, we can do better than these guys are doing. And they not only studied what was doing. Imagine the- seeing the Hills have eyes and being like, I can do better than that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it was the Hills have eyes too. You could say that. Uh, okay. You know, but yeah, you're right. But there was a lot of, there was, there was a lot of like horror movies. In the a lot of back then. Yeah. There was a lot of. Like, oh, I could do that. I, I mean, he can, obviously. Yeah. Sam Raimi. It's not just like, yeah. <laughs> but still. That's yeah, a lot of chutzpah for your average 18 year old. <laughs> yeah, right? like good, damn. So, this, although to the that point, like when I was 18 and I had like a script analysis class my first semester of college, we were doing like Ibsen's The Dollhouse. And I remember being like one day just whipping out like, this is all right at everything, but it's no Haunted Creek, which oh, is my like okay. 30 page short that I wrote. And they're like, what's the Haunted Creek? I'm like, let me tell you about let me regale this, you with yeah. my efforts. This movie about like the disgraced fourth member of Grand Funk Railroad. Um, <laughs> okay, I have questions, so, but yeah. yeah. We'll talk, that's for the patrons. Yeah. We'll okay, talk. that's um, for the patrons, yeah. Excellent. Um, so they start going to the drive-ins and they start gauging audience reactions. Okay, but during the down moments right here, the audience gets bored. They start flipping their headlights. Um, so he's like, we're going to make a movie that is just going to be completely unrelenting. Like from start to finish, there's going to be like almost no breaks in between once the action gets going so that people can't get bored and they're going to tell people to go see this movie. I mean, they did it. Yes. They did that Mm -hmm. for sure. Um, Even at like the risk of making sense, the movie just does not stop. Yeah. And it's, I think it's good that it doesn't because you're right. Like there, once you start to like think about it a little bit, it kind of breaks down very quickly. Yeah. I think what's fun about revisiting it. I mean, I'm sure we have so much to say about the movie, but what's fun about revisiting it is like now there's so much lore in the movie or in Mm -hmm. the universe that you can talk about. And I was like looking back and I'm like, when did the word like Kondarian get said Mm -hmm. for the first time? Like, what did they call the Necronomicon in the first one? Did they call it anything? Like, it's fun to did. look. I don't think they do. And I like, I couldn't tell. I was like, am I zoning out? But I was like, literally none of this is covered. It's just mm-hmm. like the incantation and then the the undead or whatever. Like, I don't think they're not called deadites, certainly. No. Um, like, yeah, like they really did just make a scary movie where some shit happens. Yep. <laughs> I don't know. And then built this whole universe from there. Yeah. And I think that's kind of perfect for the kind of crowd they were going for. hundred you know? percent. You know, and I think that like, if you, you know, if you start to like bog down into like why this is happening, that's, I think it, for the kind of like 42nd street crowd or the horror, the driving crowd, like that's going to, you know, turn a lot of people off at that point. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. a lot of the, when you look at like the Giallo films of Italy, you know, like, the reason why they're paced the way they are and the fact that like the stories really don't matter is because mm-hmm. of a similar thing in that uh, Italy was a very, like going to the movies in Italy was a very social thing apparently, back especially back then, because there really wasn't a lot of TV. There was like one mm-hmm. state-owned television channel. <laughs> and so you'd go, apparently you'd go with your friends and you would shoot the shit. 
and like yeah. drink wine and like eat bread and watch a movie. Mm-hmm. And so these movies were paced in a way that like you didn't really need to pay attention. And mm-hmm. then they would hit you with either like sex or mm-hmm. something like gore or outrageous to like draw your attention back to it. And that's kind of like what Raimi does here in, in that in that like it's calculated, you know, like mm-hmm. you were saying, like it just it's another example of just like how practical these guys mm-hmm. went in, like thinking about it how they went into it it's like okay how can we make money we can make a horror movie can make Mm -hmm. money if we're going to make a horror movie let's see what other horror movies are like let's see where they fall short and how we can fix that and it's just it's i just like there are certain filmmakers that i feel like they're geniuses i think word the word genius gets thrown around like way too often Mm -hmm. and there's i feel like there's different levels to that but i feel like a guy like uh, Robert Rodriguez is like this too, in that like he he's a genius at thinking about how to do things and getting mm-hmm. them done. Like Cronenberg is a genius on a whole other like plate of like what he's trying to say, and I think Raimi is like R- Rodriguez in that way. Like he's kind of a genius of how to execute things. Yep. And uh, you know, one of the things that I've kind of always thought about his stuff and what, what I find amazing about this movie is that there, are, there aren't many directors, maybe Argento is one of them, when I look at their first film where like their aesthetic and their artistic like visual style is like totally realized. Yeah. You know, of course he gets like more money and more toys to play with to kind of like fine tune it. But it's amazing when you watch Evil Dead how much of what Sam Raimi is to become is already there. Yeah. <laughs> and I think in part it's part of that is because he literally made like dozens of short movies before this. So he had like had so much time to kind of like fine-tune that craft a bit. Um, as a even though it's his first feature, there's like dozens of other works that he had done. But and to not only that, to say like I know what works for me. So I'm going to return to this well and I'm going to fine tune it and refine it. But you watch that, you watch the operating scene in Spider-Man 2 with Doc Ock. And it is like straight out of Evil Dead 2. Yeah. 20 years later. And it really is like no other filmmaker would shoot that scene. Mm -hmm. He does. Yeah. No, like... I mean, that scene blows me away, I think. Like, again, I saw the Spider-Man movies before I saw Evil Dead Mm -hmm. or any of the Evil Dead movies. So, like, looking back at that scene, which just I thought was, like, a bizarre scene in a Spider-Man movie that was so fun and totally worked. And, like, looking back at it and being like, holy shit, this is straight up Evil Dead too. (laughs) Like, (laughs) like, he, yeah. And they let him make Spider-Man movies. They let him make... They were like, you can make Spider-Man when his like most popular credit was Evil Dead. Like, and what? Not only that, like you can make a Spider-Man movie when like the superhero genre is pretty much dead and buried. Like it's not like True. it is now. It was like that movie was a huge risk, and that film, like that, it might not have. It wasn't quite as risky as giving Tim Burton Batman off the True, back yeah. of like just like a couple of off the back of like one or two movies but it wasn't like sam raimi at that point was like a household name that was um you know he was known as that horror movie guy and he did it like himself too which is what's mm-hmm. so cool like yeah. again something i wouldn't have noticed at the time i would have just thought oh this is a fun like i mean i loved it as an awesome spider-man movie but like he did that as himself like there's mm-hmm. no 
I mean, this isn't a Spider-Man episode, but like there's no sense that there was like some specific list of Spider-Man things that he had to do. Yeah. Like that movie is a Sam Raimi movie. And I think that's so like the, I, I mean, I think all of them, but like it really, that's, those are his movies. They look like his movies. Bruce Campbell is there being a jerk. Mm-hmm. Like it's amazing that Sony was just like, yeah, go ahead. Sure, go ahead. And what's interesting is like, it wasn't until the third movie when the studio said like, this is what we need you to put in that like the formula got muddied a bit. Yeah. You know, that's when you look back and I actually like that. You might actually hear me in another show guesting, like arguing about why Spider-Man three is better than you remember it. But you I know, like it's Spider-Man three. Yeah. I like all I liked it when it came out and I like it now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But you like it's not until like he's handed like sheaves of notes from the studio and like basically told you have to put like these villains in that you know the the formula gets a bit mucked up at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, what I do find fascinating about not just Raimi but also like and I think Bruce Campbell doesn't get enough credit for this and Rob Tappert their business sense like mm-hmm. they decided like not only are we going to make a movie is like nineteen year olds and twenty I think Bruce might have been like a year or Tappert was a couple years older. But we're actually going to form like an LLC. Like we're going to go in as partners together. They actually like hire, they scrape up enough money to hire a lawyer before they raise money for the movie. And they like have write up, have them write up the document and say like, here's how many shares each of us have. Here's what we're responsible for. Um, Here's what we want to do. So these are like, before they even make a movie, they're like, this is what we need to do. It's not just like, let's go make a movie and see what happens. Um, on i think it was a jonathan ross's the let me just scroll down here so i get my on jonathan ross's like the incredibly strange film show Raimi talks about like raising funds for the evil dead and he talks about how if an investor turned them down they would say well give us two or three people that you think would invest they would call those people and he would say hey like dr so-and-so your golf buddy said you might be interested in funding our movie and they're like well i don't know who you are no i don't want to do that i'm busy well you know you're off of work at five why don't we swing by and show you our short movies and we'll give you our pitch and they're like well you know i'm in the great we'll see you at eight o'clock tonight fantastic and they would just show up on the doorstep and they would knock on enough doors and eventually they got enough local business people to show to fund the movie they were they wanted to raise 150,000 i think when all was said and done it cost close to a half so more than halloween which stuns me when you think about this movie but almost mm-hmm. a half a million dollars to make this movie and wow. they also, they also like were smart enough to not just take money like when someone wasn't willing to give money like well you own a lumber business we're gonna yeah. need lumber <laughs> yeah <laughs> well, you can you invest by giving us wood mm-hmm. you know I mean, or like you know and they they were thinking you know they had a plan and they were like yeah. okay we need we need these resources and if we can't get the money to buy them maybe we can get somebody to give them yeah. to us yeah, i think that's just so smart and what they did like Raimi, because he'd only done comedy he films two short movies clockwork is the first one it's an eight minute short um it's kind of like a, a woman being stalked in her home there are some a couple really good shots in it it's you know but it's the first time he ever does like a gory effect in one of his movies but the better known of the two is probably within the woods which is basically the evil dead condensed down to about 30 minutes at that point like a lot of the camera mm-hmm. tricks you see a lot of the same makeup work is in there there are similar angles um i think it was described as like if there's the rare person 
who thinks the Evil Dead is too long to get to the good stuff, like watch Within the Woods at that point. So, and they would, one story I read had them like setting it up literally in grocery stores for investors to show to people, like just to get like local, like pharmacists and grocers to kick in a few bucks to the movie. Do you think that like you have that kind of foresight? Like, do you think if some kid stopped you in like a grocery store and was like, come watch my short movie and invest in it. And you saw that you'd be like, yeah, here's some money. (laughs) You know, it depends. Um, I think it depends on like where you, where I would be financially. Like if I had, because I've kicked into like a lot of Kickstarters with like 20 Mm -hmm. bucks or 50 bucks. Cause I'm like, Oh, this looks pretty cool. Um, I also think that maybe 40 years ago, you're going to mom and pa grocery stores you're, when you're going to the bank, you're not going to like your local sovereign bank or like Bank of America where there's just like a faceless branch. Like, you know, right. the banker, you know, the grocer, you know, the local, you know, you know, your doctors. Like when you go to a doctor now, you're in and out in six minutes. Like they can't get rid of you fast enough. And they sometimes don't even make eye contact. They just read a chart. This would be a time where like you would know the doctors. Yeah. So there was probably like, and this is, you know, maybe I'm making too much of it, but I think maybe a greater sense of community and like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I just mean like, would you be like, yeah, here kids, here's your 50 bucks. Or would you be like, holy shit. This is the next big thing. (laughs) This is it. I'm, I can't believe I've come across this opportunity to invest. I don't think anybody in in the Detroit suburban (laughs) area. In the Detroit suburbs at the grocery store was like, like, there's 20 G's kids. Yeah. You see the pharmacist and they're like, you know, looking at Sam Raimi, you look over at the comic book rack and you see Spider-Man, you look over at Sam Raimi and you're like, you know what? One day, I think this guy is going to be directing a Spider-Man movie. Here's 50G, kids. See what you got. Go <laughs> Here's my it. life savings. Do you think Here's that, my mortgage. Do you think that like it being like 1978 or whatever, 79 when they were trying to raise money, like the fact that you know, not everybody has a camera. It's, you know, there's no YouTube. There's, yeah. there's no three channels right. on the television. You know, there's one local theater that probably has just one screen. Do you think that like hurts or helps like their their argument? Do you think like them not knowing anything about it was like, oh, this seems like, this sounds really interesting. Yeah. And like, it's a local Detroit guy trying to make a movie. Or do you think it's like, I don't know anything about it. And, you know, do you think it makes it even harder? I think maybe because like they have like the short films they can show, like they could take the projector with them and set it up and show. And you could see like a fairly professional looking like product and like eight millimeter at that point that you might be like, like, oh my God, I didn't know someone here. Like you're not in Hollywood or New York. Like, so that might, I think that would work to their favor at that point when they see like, when you watch within the woods, like so much of what goes into Evil Dead is yeah. already like right there in the screen that you can kind of see. And they had a whole business plan. They're like, if you invest this much, like you, we will promise you that you get this much back in return at that point. So they were like presenting like this whole plan. And I think, you know, they talk about all wearing like suits and ties to go to it. So, um, and like, they grew beards because they're like, well, that's what like adults do is they grow beards. So that way we look older. Um, I think that would help. I think be- like to your point, because it's not everyone's trying to get YouTube famous. Um, you're more likely to take a chance on like one person. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think I agree. Like it's such a like treat. It's not like now where you're like, you could watch 50 short films before bed. Maybe it's like such a like, whoa, you made a movie? Yeah. That's wild. And it's like so impressive. Mm-hmm. I would agree. I absolutely, yeah, I think I would agree. <laughs> well, even, like it, even like in the 90s, I mean, like I made lots of movies with my friends. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I didn't go the comedy route. They were like, this was like the mid 90s. So I was going, you know, we were like Quentin Tarantino. Mm-hmm. We were doing like 15 year olds doing yeah. like mob movies. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. I love we, did, that. we did do one Vietnam picture but mm-hmm. uh, oh my god but even like by like the time i got to college this was like there still really wasn't the internet presence so like yeah. to even like i remember going to conventions and stuff and like hunting the, the super eight films down and having like crappy vhs copies of them even then it was like exciting to watch them because mm-hmm. there wasn't all this other stuff like mm-hmm. you were just saying like, yeah. there wasn't even in like 1999 it was like it was yeah. exciting to watch these shorts because yeah. there wasn't a million other shorts to watch somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. and now, yeah, now it's very, everything, I think like the sense of discovery is gone in a lot of ways with, because of it. on the other hand, like there's so much cool stuff that's available that you can like find some really neat things. I know for me, like one of my favorite movies of the past 10 years, low budget movies is The Battery by Jeremy Gardner, uh, who would go on to do After Midnight. So the battery is like a $6,000 zombie movie that doesn't really focus on the zombies. It like very much focuses on like the friendship of the two characters. He -hmm. made it for about 6K. And what he did is he went to like 60 friends and relatives and he's a new New England based filmmaker. And he asked them, uh, he's the director behind After Midnight, the movie with uh, Bray Grant as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, That's like the one of her like year... Oh, yeah. like massive year that I haven't seen yet. Oh, he's just like incredible and just is like a national treasure and should be encased in glass and yeah. nothing bad should ever happen to her. Um, yeah. But he went to like family and relatives and said like, if you went to Foxwoods tonight, how much are you comfortable losing at the casino? And they were like, yeah, about a hundred bucks. They're like, great, give me a hundred bucks and put it into the movie. And that's what they did. Um, and he raised six grand. His follow-up movie was like a one-man movie, just him. Um, Tex Montana will survive. He takes on like the Bear Grylls types of comedy. And he basically said, I'll kickstart it. If you if we raise 50 grand, I'll put it on YouTube for free. <laughs> and that's what people did. So it's just like different ways of like raising money in this day and age that you know can make a lot of sense. He's one of my favorite. He's like very much of the Benson and Moorhead type okay. of like vibe. So I would definitely seek out the battery. Okay. Um, all right. So I think that's like the tradition of like what you see with filmmakers like Raimi coming from that, like very do it yourself background. You're seeing that today with, with Benson and Moorhead, um, and with guys like Jeremy Gardner, I would say like Joe Bejos, who did VFW and Almost Human. Um, the gentleman who did just did Psycho Gorman, who's part of like Astron 6, like mm-hmm. the Astron 6 crew to me. Feels Canadian like the, treasure. What's that? A Canadian treasure. Oh, absolutely. God, that movie's so good. So <laughs> that's where I see like Raimi, like his descendants basically, like in, you know, except like these are folks that like love horror just because they love horror because of Sam Raimi. Where Sam Raimi is like, let me make a Three Stooges movie. But well, with- yeah. Talk about his descendants. I mean, they like 
There are so many amazing uh, creators that came out literally of the Evil Dead, like Joel mm. Cohen. Um, you know, talked about how the shaky cam was all just because he helped. He was assistant editor mm-hmm. on Evil Dead and brought the shaky. I, what did I write here? Anyway, and then I think is it? I meant to like check, but it's for part two. Was it like Tarantino who edited the chainsaw scene or something bizarre like that? We'll talk about really? that in episode two when yeah, I actually we know it. Confirm that. I wouldn't know. I didn't so I'm know like ninety percent sure that that's what it is. That would have been eighty-seven, right? I would have thought like Tarantino would have been just working in a video store back then. There's something like bizarre. I I don't know. I'm like, it's one of those facts that I'm like 90% is true, but mm-hmm. I would have like looked it up for the episode on Evil Dead 2. This um, sounds so like internet legends. Stay tuned. Um, but yeah, there's like, anyway, he definitely, he has actual descendants that are stellar filmmakers. Mm-hmm. So Ooh, I just lost track. Yeah, I, I know. I, Everyone's like, is yeah. the Tarantino thing true? That's yeah, that really thinking. drew, I think huh. the Tarantino thing. I could look it up well. right now, <laughs> but I, I like almost want to save it. Let's save it. Let's save it for Pratt. Tease. Okay. <laughs> yeah. um, all right. So they move, they decide they're going to film in Tennessee because Michigan would give them no tax breaks. At that point, Tennessee actually like courted them. Like when they applied to other states, like Tennessee actually put together a little package and said like, this is why you should film with us here this is what we can offer you but the original cabin they're supposed to shoot in falls through so like there's a local entrepreneur gary holt he basically was best known in the area for being on the dwarf tossing circuit he had like a dwarf that like looked i think they said like mr t that he would like get enter into competitions and then toss him which is weird um he was especially because at, at some point, I mean, at this point, like I don't think anybody would have known who Mr. T was. I mean, yeah, I think that might have been later. <laughs> so that might have been later that the Mr. T part of it got added in. So you're right, because I would have been like 83 with like Rocky Three. Um, but he was just this weird guy that had his like fingers in a million different pockets, like a little million different businesses in the area. So when the first cabin falls through, he finds him this place that's like an absolute like dump. Like the cows in the area had knocked the doors off the hinges at that point. They uh, Campbell talks about there being like three inches of cow dung covering like every surface. Um, the neat thing about this cabin is it's haunted. So I don't know if you guys have heard the story about the Evil Dead cabin. I have, but please. All right. So the, the original gentleman that built it was struck by lightning as he lay in the last brick that was on the chimney and legend had it there was still a space where that brick never got put years later a mother a grandmother and a daughter all move in together there are thunderstorms the little girl wakes up runs to her mom's room to get comforted mom is lying in bed dead girl freaks out runs to grandma's room for a little bit of comfort gets in the bed grandma is dead girl obviously freaked out like runs out into the rain screaming crying she's taken in by another family they um keep they like raise her but you know the girl is never quite the same and allegedly during the filming of the evil dead as they're like setting up in the cabin like some local persons come by have you seen claire i think was what her name was and they're like no why they're like well you know this is what happened here and when it thunders out she tends to kind of wander out confused and they're like, as far as we know, like when we left, they still hadn't found her and she could be wandering in the woods. So that is freaky. 
Yeah. And then a month they... later, the cabin burns down after they leave. Wait. Yeah. Somebody. Burned um, it down? No, somebody recently posted like that they had a brick from the burned down cabin. And I was like, mm -hmm. shut up. Yeah. And oh gosh, I can't remember who, who that it was. somebody be. Somebody like, oh my gosh, I can't remember. Someone tweeted it. Someone was like, it was like one of those like tweet chains. It was like, what's your favorite horror mm -hmm. prop that you have? Mm -hmm. And they were like, I went to the burned down cabin and stole the brick. And I was like, and how much do you want for it? Is my question. How do <laughs> and, I get it? And did they, did you make an offer? I didn't. I didn't actually say that. I just thought it. Just thought it out loud. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what else do we know about the shoot? It's like cold. It's miserable. Six weeks turn to 12 weeks. They have no money. Like it sounds like the absolute worst fucking experience ever making a movie. Yeah, it sounds like they had a bad time so much so that like Bruce Campbell talks about like not wanting to do it to this day that he like hates it, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is funny. Um, yeah, it was like cold. They're in the shitty cabin that was haunted. They didn't mm -hmm. like the blood. They didn't like the costumes. They didn't like the makeup. But, mm -hmm. you know, listen, it was a shitty budget indie movie. What mm -hmm. can I tell you? <laughs> they lose two days of the show. The first day of the shoot, they get chased through a field by a bull apparently like they're just like trying to set up like the first shot of the movie and a bull sees them so i think one of the guys had to like sing to the bull to distract it and what? while they're running away from the bull one of the like the pas falls off a little cliff and like breaks his leg and is taken to the hospital like day one the shoot is already fucked but there's also like i so there's this whole thing about like Remy wanted to create like a legendary um uh, he wanted the shoot to seem super legendary so he like mm -hmm. created a bunch of like rumors mm -hmm. that are like still getting debunked every so often mm -hmm. so like the haunted house perhaps the burn down maybe he did it um maybe one sam raimi is an arsonist <laughs> honestly maybe because there's been that like long running rumor about the i mean the shaky cam which we will talk about it at length but there's been that like long time rumor that he like got on a motorcycle and drove it through the house and like ran into Bruce Campbell and broke his arm. And it's like this mm -hmm. whole big thing, but it like didn't happen. Like Bruce Campbell at a panel like two years ago mm -hmm. was like, well, maybe it did happen. Maybe Bruce Campbell's talking shit, but he said like two years ago, he was like, yeah, that didn't happen. Like Raimi just wanted to like have a cool air around the movie. So mm -hmm. we told everyone that it's like, not real. So now I don't know what to believe. And I also like, I love the idea of him making up a bunch of stories about a tumultuous mm -hmm. shoot that aren't real. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, when you look at the behind the scenes footage, like there's like some, like there's like a 15 minute behind the scenes footage reel. Mm -hmm. And everybody looks fucking miserable when they're doing this movie. There's a lot yeah, of cursing. True. There's a lot of like, it looks torturous for what they're mm -hmm. doing. I mean, isn't that, I mean, it's kind of the nature of, independent filmmaking yeah. especially especially back then because of that they were actually shooting film and mm -hmm. you need to actually light film and you know you hear that th talks about like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and the amount of light they needed to shoot yeah that that dinner scene you know it was like 120 degrees in there not just from being outside but the fact that they needed to actually get an exposure on the mm -hmm. film itself needed so much light I mean, this is just, uh, you know, like five years, five years later or something. And yep. they're shooting 16, which might have a, a little better latitude. I, I don't know what stock they were shooting. But so like there, there are like technical things that have to yeah. happen to make a film. 
And mm-hmm. when you're like understaffed, under budget, and everybody, and you're like in one location and everybody has to live there and you got to do all these night shoots. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not, it's, look, it's not really a recipe for a good time yeah. if you want to get anything done. <laughs> and it's also like a 20 year old doing his first feature movie with no money. Like they were making like $30 a week to be on set. They were supposed to be there for six weeks and it stretched out like double that. Um, one of the things that was said, like what Raimi would do is he never shot like a whole take. Like they never did like a take where the actors would run through the scene. Like he would just set up like the angle he wanted. They would run that part of it. And then, so they had a hard time, A, getting into a flow with it, but then also B, like it took so much longer to just get a little bit of coverage and footage based on doing that way. And like, the good thing is like in the editing room, it comes together, it's exactly what he wants. But I know they talked about like as performers, like it became really hard to get a flow. Um, One of the really neat things I found when I was like researching for the show, the, I think second unit camera person, like it was Josh Becker who would go on to do the movie, like thou should not kill unless he kept a running journal of his time on the set and he posted it on his blog that he still keeps. And it's an outside part of it is like, he was a little bit bitter because he thought he would get asked to be a partner in Renaissance pictures, but it became really clear that he was just kind of a hired hand. Um, But he talks about how like, as it's, it's almost like, um, in the heart of darkness in terms of like him slowly being driven mad the longer the shoot goes on. Um, and there were a lot of times he wanted to leave and he said like, look, every, after six weeks, everybody left except for like Bruce, Rob, Sam, Goodman and Becker and everybody else was gone because they're like, we've had enough. That's what our contract is. We're not going to do this. Becker said like he, kissed and moaned a lot but because he stayed like Ramey started to finally be like hey here's my advice make a 10 minute short that kicks ass make that your calling card and then he's like whatever you're working on after this call me and we'll help you any way we can so even though he wasn't brought but like you when you read this and there's links to it in my notes it's a really fascinating read like one of the last entries is like I'm going mad I can't even think straight anymore this is really terrible so it just like um, I think Betsy Baker, uh, the one of the performers, talks about like the scene where you see her head and arm flopping. They build mm-hmm. a flake fake floor, and her and Tabard are basically playing Twister with one another underneath it for hours, trapped under there. And at one point, she's like, uh, "Sam, like we've been down here for hours," and she turns her head, and they've been shooting for so long that like Ramy fell asleep standing up at that point just from sheer exhaustion so and yeah that's a lot i'd yeah. be mad yeah, yeah. um yeah you know, there's also all this stuff that um you know there's the there's the, there's the shoot at the cabin but then mm-hmm. they end up going and like cheating all this stuff later on oh yeah which is just another kind of like symbol of brilliance mm-hmm. and that like you really can't tell and so like and yeah. you can tell that like the guy who plays scott uh his his hair gets shorter at some mm-hmm. point you can tell that like he they actually talked him back into coming back at some point probably in yeah. michigan to shoot the yep. stuff in the basement when they find the shotgun and whatnot but well, they, uh go ahead no i'm sorry i interrupted you first 
Yeah, I was just going to say, it's just like, it's really hard to even place like everything that they're yeah. doing because they, they raise money, they go and shoot. And then I think they, after everybody leaves, they then have to raise more money mm-hmm. and then they shoot more like at the Tappard cabin, in Rainey's basement, like, and all these things. That's where we get all like the fake shemps and whatnot. Yep. And then they have to raise more money for post-production. And then that's when they end up meeting them. Joseph and, Paducah, but when we get to post, that's a whole other thing. And Blake, for those who don't know, can you describe what a fake, because I love this. <laughs> can, you, can you let our listeners know what a, fla- a fake Shemp is? Well, the, the term comes from the fact that, as you stated, the uh, Ramey and, and uh, Campbell were huge Three Stooges fans. And the, the Three Stooges would shoot like three shorts at a time. And they mm-hmm. shot shorts to utilize locations and whatnot. Now, unfortunately, there were three brothers, the Howard brothers, Mo, uh, Curly, and Shem. Mm-hmm. And uh, at some point, Curly had like a stroke. Yeah. And uh, they actually started with Shem, then Shem left. Then they got they asked their younger brother, Curly, to come back. And then when Curly had a stroke, they had Shem come. And then unfortunately, Shem has a heart attack and dies mm-hmm. when they're in the middle of shooting stuff. And they're under contract, so they have to finish. So they get another actor to kind of be the fake Shemp, mm-hmm. where he's shorter, he doesn't look anything like Shemp, he's hiding his face. It might have even have... been like Curly Joe with that, but it might have been like one of the Curly Joes that went on, I think. Yeah, I don't I don't know for sure, because you had Joe Besser mm-hmm. come on at some point, and then Curly Joe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, apparently Ramey and, and Campbell always thought it was hilarious. They'd always point out when they saw the fake Shemp. Mm-hmm. So the term fake Shemp ends up running through all throughout uh, Ramey's career, but it starts here with Evil Dead in that because they didn't have the actors for so much of the shoot, like we have Ted Raimi's feet, yeah. <laughs> you know, like walking in the close up yeah. and all these other people and all these other body parts. And so the, they create this credit called the fake shemp yeah. for somebody I, standing in. And I think like Becker in his journal, he writes like when Ted Raimi shows up, he's like, I think this guy's only purpose on the set is to fucking annoy me. And he's doing a <laughs> great job of it. Like he's like, I hate him so much. Um, Ellen Sandweiss, who played Cheryl, like she talks about, look, like usually when you're in a movie set, like when you're not shooting, you go somewhere nice and warm, you have a coat, you have a little spot, you go. She's like, we're in the middle of nowhere. There's no, there's no heat. You know, we got a couple like space heaters. Like Ramey talks about how there was no running water in the cabin. So they would heat up coffee. He would have to like dip his hands in the coffee whenever he would have to change the film stock because hands would be so frozen. And then he's like, oh shit, I have coffee in my hands. I have to be extra careful now if I'm going to change like the film out. And Alan's like, there's nowhere for us to go. Like we're just sitting there in the cold and we're shooting from like midnight until like six in the morning or like 8 PM to like six in the morning and how um, awful it was just like really. But then they look back and they're like, this was, which was fantastic. Like, you know, it's like one of the best experiences of my life where I wanted to like murder everybody. Yeah. Well, it's, it's weird with those things, you know, like, you know, I, I had plenty of bad outdoor night film shoots mm-hmm. back in, in my college days, but they were for like three nights, you know, they, yeah. were, <laughs> they weren't for like six weeks straight, mm-hmm. but there is something about like when you're in these kinds of circumstances, like as as grueling and as horrible as things are, 
you know, not just yeah. filmmaking, anything, even if it's a job that has nothing to do with filmmaking. And that's why, like, even, like, guys in the military, like, yeah. you, they, these weird bonds form over stuff. And then it's, like, this mm-hmm. shared experience that you're yeah. always going to have. It. And nobody else is ever going to have experienced that moment. Yeah, you got and, through it. Yeah, and it's, it, and it's, and look, I mean, for a film that's of this type, I mean, it's not like it's bad morale for <laughs> people that are, have to be crazy in a, yeah. in a cold cat. Yep. It definitely, True. it was like that, like you mentioned the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and the heat of the dinner scene. It's like, you're slowly being driven mad, like smelling this rancid meat. You know, I could picture that and Hooper's cigars and just like being slowly driven mad, having to like shoot that scene. Where by the end, like you want to torture somebody because you feel so angry and pissed off that you want to get it wow. out of your system. At I, that have, am I in character or what? <laughs> yeah, like it's going full method at that point. Yeah, well, I mean, um, uh, Gunnar Hansen used to talk about during that scene where they really lost it. Yeah, and like they were like when they're taunting her, like they were really like they would have yeah. killed her had yeah. like gone longer. They really kind of just like lost their minds in that yeah. shoot. Um. The last couple notes on here, one, they lost two days of the shoot um, over bad chili. We're like, they're like one of their PAs who like, I, I drove, I couldn't hold the camera. So I drove and I cooked and he's like made them. He's like, guys, I got this solution. Here's my chili recipe. And it basically like Ramey accused them of drugging them because it knocked everybody <laughs> out and they lost a day of shoot. And the next day they woke up and ate it again. And again, like all of them conked out, like, I don't know, from food poisoning or what. But they lose two what? days to that. Yeah. Bad, bad like chili will do that. Too. Goodman's chili, basically. Absurd. But right. okay. <laughs> and finally, at the end of the shoot, they lost the accommodations that the cast and crew were staying in. They were kicked out of it because it had to be converted into a brothel. Well, so there listen, you go. You got to get out. Got to get out. Boars are coming. So, business you know, it's got a business. It's you know, got to get out. That's it. That's it. So, yeah, I just found that like a really fun fact. Like we were kicked out of our accommodations because <laughs> it was going to become a brothel. So this chili thing is great. baffling to me because like I'm sitting here like, what were they thinking? But like, it makes perfect sense. They were like cold and hungry and they definitely ate that yeah. chili twice. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, that's, but yeah, the, the second time is what gets me. I get it like mm-hmm. doing it once, but like, you know, that or they don't eat that thing you know yeah. the yeah. chili or chili or, or they were like this shoot sucks <laughs> we got yep. a free day off because of this chili mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. it's worth it is, eating this chili again like, look this chili is really bad let's just say we can't shoot yeah yeah or they just like didn't eat it the second time but they were like we ate it and we need another day off yeah bad chili i mean honestly like rancid chili Oh my god. It's one of just the worst, yeah. It is yeah. one of the worst experiences. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, maybe they don't have high fiber diets and the beans were just too much for them. Oh. They like weren't ready for it. It took guys, them out of commission. It can you happen. You guys can do uh, b- bad chili stories for <laughs> <laughs> the patrons. Yeah. Bad chili. Uh, yeah, yeah. That'll be a special um, hundred dollars right. here. Um so before we talk about like how they sold this movie, let's shift gears a little bit and let's talk about specific things that we love about this movie itself like why we kind of hold it so near and dear and Lindsay, i see you make it a little face like i don't know what's so great so i'm gonna kick back for a minute (laughs) 
I mean, there's a reason a movie like this has staying power. I think that it works so well as a companion with the sequel or with the second one. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, you get a funnier take on a similar formula, which mm-hmm. is so much fun. Um, and if you kind of like close your eyes and think back, as much as they're such different movies, they're, you know, there are parts that you could be like, oh, which one was that from? And they're just like fun and silly. Like re-watching this one, I was expecting it. Like I definitely watched two and three more than I watched this one. Um, and I kind of like didn't remember or I, I didn't know how much fun it was going to be. But like it totally is. There's so much blood. There's so mm-hmm. much silly bullshit. That tape, the first time they listened to the tape is so scary and so good. And what a simple thing just to have like Bruce Campbell in a basement playing a recorded tape and have that be like a catalyst of so much fear that sets off mm-hmm. so much. And it's just like so brilliant and fun. And I don't know, yeah. I love it. <laughs> I love it. That's my review. What gets me is just how, like, I don't know if this is the first movie, like the Cabin in the Woods type of horror movie, mm-hmm. but it is definitely sets the gold standard. And it's the prototype yeah. for like literally hundreds of movies that are going to follow it. Um, to me, what I like is like, I buy all of them as friends. And this is something I talk about a lot. Like you can see this like group of five people getting together, even though they all have like different personalities. And what was interesting in like rewatching it was how much like Scotty was kind of set up to be the hero for the first half of the movie and how much like Bruce Campbell is like, kind of like fades into the background for the first half of this movie. And he's not really the ash that we know and love in this first movie he's very much just like a guy in a situation where he's in over his head Mm -hmm. yeah he looks upset most of the time yeah and um in like a very excellent way which is funny because like he looks so like he looks like ruth campbell like Mm -hmm. he's like big and has big features like a big chin and huge cheekbones and his face looks like it's like a meter tall. Mm-hmm. Like he's got, he still looks like Bruce Campbell, but he plays like kind of like a ween. Like he's always like kind of screaming and upset. Mm-hmm. Um, I always thought it was bizarre throughout the films. Like his sister gets like shot in the face and he's like, oh, bummer. But then his girlfriend and he's like, no, <laughs> for like the remaining, mm-hmm. the rest of the franchise. He's very upset about his girlfriend, but not so much the sister. He's like, anyway, late sis. Um, <laughs> wow, okay. Um, what about you, um, Blake? Uh, I mean, there's so many things to like about it. and I, But I can understand if there are people that don't. like. I can understand a movie like this isn't everybody's cup of tea. Let me yeah. put it that way. But there are certain movies, especially back in my younger days when I had it when I thought I was going to make movies, there were movies that I was, they were movies that made me want to make movies, you know, and they were, they're usually movies that were clearly like low budget, but awesome. And they're like Mad Max or like the Leone Westerns or like, and Evil Dead was definitely one of those. Like when you watch this movie and if you have an interest in making film, there's no way you can't like be excited (laughs) when you watch this movie. Uh, you know, some of the things we already talked about, like the fact that like Raimi's distinct style is so fully realized in this movie is is the reason why it's so awesome. Yeah. Like it, it's, you know, like I, I, I put a lot of, there's like two things that like I really put a lot of stock in when it comes to movies. It's like weird 
movies that are weird, like genuinely weird. I'm like, that was weird. I'm into it. <laughs> and there's like movies that are original. What you get with yeah. Evil Dead is it's weird, not in the same way I would normally consider. It's like I would use that word in, in that context. But you get a movie that like maybe the Cabin in the Woods thing didn't exist, but there was no, uh, you know, there, there was no like drought of horror movies that had like teens or young adults mm-hmm. traveling someplace and running into trouble. I mean, <laughs> I mean, like it was a formula that was not unique, but the fact that this guy, these three guys, managed to make a movie that was so absolutely unique out of something that's so cliche, more cliche now than it probably was then, but probably still was by then. I mean, you had Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm -hmm. You had, it wasn't like, you know, teenagers, but you had The Hills Have Lies where it's like they break down and, you know, even, you know, the Night of Living Dead, like this idea of like rural America being a place of horror. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you've had deliverance, you know, 10 years before, yeah. before this movie. Uh, they take a supernatural, uh, you know, uh, take on it, which may, which has it, makes it kind of stand apart from those movies. But it is a movie that is on paper, not unique at all. But yet oh. when you watch it, it's completely unique. Well, it's so simple. I mean, it's probably one of the best elevator pitches when you think of like a movie. It's like five friends go out to the woods, they awaken an ancient demonic force and one by one, they're like (laughs) dismembered until one person is left. And you're like, I'm in. Um, And I I think it's like such a, the beauty of it is that it's simplicity, but it's executed with such ferocity throughout the movie. Like it is just like once like I, I, I hit the pause button on the moment where Cheryl starts reciting the cards. Cause to me, that's the moment where the movie really starts. And it's like 24 minutes in and the next hour of that movie, like it really doesn't stop to catch its breath at all. Yeah. Um, and some, like one of the things that I appreciate about it is be, and it's kind of the mother of a dimension. Most of the third act is just Bruce Campbell. And it's mm-hmm. just Bruce Campbell reacting to things. And again, that's because the other four principals by that time left the shoot. Like they were like, we're done. So a lot of it was just like, I think the uh, Tabard talks about the script being written on like 27 napkins. And literally like, that's just how there's so little script to it. Um, so they would just invent things on the fly and allowing Bruce Campbell just to react to things gives you like 20 minutes of pure horror. And you would see that same thing done again in Evil Dead 2, but with a markedly different tone to it. Mm-hmm. Um, here, seeing it done for like pure madness, I think is one of the things I really appreciated about watching again this time. And then little things like the rushing camera movement. The camera never moves in a straight arc. The camera is always moving side to side. It's bobbing and weaving. There's a sense of height to it. There's a sense of width to it. Um, It's not just somebody running straight ahead with this camera. It's like almost like an obstacle course. That's one of the things I really love as well, like rewatching it. Just like the drive to the cabin when they're pulling in, um, just watching like little things like the tree branches 
brush up against the camera lens and then slowly kind of pull back from it. I don't know. It was like little things like that on my rewatch got me. So like, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Okay. Um, so like, yeah, you know, we talk about the shaky cam coming out of Evil mm-hmm. Dead and again, all the myths of it being trapped to a motorcycle and if it was trapped to a bike and the guy's just running with the camera. But it's not so much the shaky cam that, I mean, yeah, I think it doesn't take a genius to figure this part of it out, but it wasn't really the shaky cam. It's how he used the camera as a quote character, not to be like, mm-hmm. it's another character like New York City. No. Um, but it's, it really is the POV of the, it's not like the POV of the killer, like Peeping Tom style per se, but it is like the camera is actually kind of the villain in a way, like it rushes mm-hmm. them. And the camera, even like specifically near the end, near that really, that last bit, the camera comes up behind and is what is attacking Bruce Campbell, like mm-hmm. uh, attacking Ash. So yeah, I guess it's kind of POV shot, but he really makes it this like thing that is attacking them. And it he's always kind of done weird, fun things. Like even in uh, Drag Me to Hell, there's that bit where like the fly lands on the lens and it's just like, he, he makes, he puts you there like he puts you in the scene as an audience member but then he also like kind of makes you the killer which is really fun like you're not necessarily culpable but like you almost feel like that like disney world thing where you're like in the seat for like a 4d presentation because you're like the one that is chasing bruce or Mm -hmm. ash um and he has like so much fun with that like what a cool technique that you don't yeah. even have to see the monster like yeah we see the characters transform into deadites a couple times but the like main baddie is not really seen at all mm-hmm. yeah there's you know there's two thoughts there was there's something like i always say like texas chainsaw massacre is like deceptively well shot like i think mm-hmm. we we look back at it and there's this there's all this notion of like these these legends about how like at the time people thought it was a documentary like they shot this documentary stuff but when you watch texas shades on massacre like the shot that goes like under the swing oh yeah following, like it's it is beautifully shot that movie for such ugly you know uh visuals yeah uh evil dead is is another example of like when you watch it it is incredibly well shot yeah and it's to to what Lindsay's saying. One of the things that I find really interesting about it is like one of the things that I find hard to get over when I watch like early De Palma movies is that he's constantly reminding me that I'm watching the movie. There's like split screens and you know like okay. the, the split diopters, and I do and I love those films. But mm-hmm. like it took me a while to kind of get over that hurdle of like just like i want to just watch the movie stop reminding me that it's a movie but Raimi does the same thing but there's something about it that's just like it feels more organic to the story Mm -hmm. i guess and i think it's what she's saying about like it being part of the the character Mm -hmm. of of the 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 entity that's chasing them but also just like the weird camera angles it's just the way he does it it's just like you almost don't even notice it there's, but yet it's so evident <laughs> at the same like, time. There's a fantastic shot in the cabin where it starts like with an overhead of the camera is basically above Campbell. And then it mo- it basically pivots above and then turns to face him. And that's Raimi like strapped into the ceiling doing a stomach crunch to, and then pivoting to get that shot. Like there's like a an athleticism to his camera work 
Like when you watch like the point of view shot in Halloween that opens Halloween, which is this mm-hmm. beautiful like panaglide shot, like you know that it's a person. It feels like a very human. Like you're you know you're in yeah. the point of view of you don't know it's a kid, but you know you're in the point of view of a human character. The way the camera moves in this movie, like you never feel like if the entity is some something that even resembles a human. It always feels like this very powerful otherworldly source yeah yeah and it's interesting seeing that like translate into Mm spider-man like in the scene that we're talking about the surgery scene um there's a lot of the pov shots where like doc ock is unconscious and there's these pov shots almost from his uh oh my gosh his claws what do you want to call them his arms yeah (laughs) um yeah tent oh my god wow okay Lindsay. um and you see these like the doctors and the nurses and whomever else is in there looking up like ah while it like comes at them and like you're almost getting like a pov shot from an arm that is acting on its own Mm -hmm. and again very similar kind of thing like it's not human you're not watching a human or a bug or but like you're seeing Mm -hmm. an entity that is very scary i mean it's definitely way better in evil dead but (laughs) yeah um you're seeing yeah. like a scary entity. Even like, I think you even get like a forced split screen at some point in that scene. That you shows do, like yeah. What it's, they're all looking at, at the same time. Unreal. <laughs> but yeah, like, and then yeah, like in Evil Dead, it's it chases them. Like the final scene is the camera chasing Ash. Like that's awesome. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> to, to say when to go to what you were saying earlier about Bruce Campbell at the, the end of this movie. Mm-hmm. I, I've always said, ever since I saw, especially Evil Dead 2, like Bruce Campbell is like the most underrated actor. Because oh, like there are, there aren't real, like you could have amazing actors, but I don't think even some of the best actors that you know people respect and love could could pull off what he does and really act completely by himself. Yeah. <laughs> And carry it almost in a, with Evil Dead too, almost an entire movie with just him in a room, yeah. and be like completely engaging, and uh, you know you feel sympathy and empathy, but yet it's so outrageous and he's entertaining to watch and he's charming, and you don't really get a whole lot of that in this movie, but you do get enough of a taste yeah. that to, in that last section of the movie where like I think it's part he's great, I think it's part. Raimi's great and mm-hmm. it's part that they're great together and the fact that like they can just have this whole chunk of a movie be like he's literally just like reacting to noises <laughs> there is <Space>. yeah. <laughs> it, it's so expressive and there's just a complete lack of inhibition like it's mm-hmm. allowing yourself to completely trust what Raimi is gonna like he's gonna make you look good basically and completely buying into it at that point and it's i think there are a lot of say more established performers that would never allow themselves to go to that place for fear of like how it would come off or how it would look yeah i don't know i mean maybe i don't know the answer to that maybe yeah i just like like it yeah like you can see that it's it's like a trust in Raimi. i feel like Mm -hmm. um It, it also has to do with that he's I mean, one of the things that the other things that I think Campbell is completely like underrated on is I don't think anybody really thinks about like him as a producer mm-hmm. and um, 
I don't know, about 10 years ago, eight, 10 years ago, whenever the last season of Burn Notice was, I Mm -hmm. got to interview him and I interviewed him entirely about just his producing. And because uh, I figured every, you know, like I was, I was like, I want to talk to you about this. There's no, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, but it was like, I got to talk to him about like what he did on as a producer on the Evil Dead movies. And by that point, like the new Evil Dead, the remake had come out and he produ- he co-produced that with Raimi and Tabor. And, uh, at that point also Crime Wave had just come out on Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and like you kind of, uh, pointed to earlier which was the you know like being business savvy but also just I think part of why he is so willing to go with it is that he has so much invested in it like this is it's like equally his movie yeah. as oh, yeah. Sam Raimi's movie and I think it'd be, we, we forget about that even because like I don't even think he's credited as a producer in the credits I think mm-hmm. he just took the actor yeah. credit but like this was really like their baby yeah. And, you know, even, uh, you know, Alan Sandwise says, like, sometimes, you know, Bruce did everything. He, at times, was co-director. He was yep. producer. He was the guy that handled the budget. He was the guy that shoveled the manure. <laughs> he was, yep. You know, like, he was all in. And, and, that's, uh, and that's part one, of it, I think. Yeah, one of the things, like, Becker talks about in his journal, he's like, Bruce is either, like, all shtick and all laughs, or he was all business. And it was, like could happen just like that and he would let like there were points where he'd be like no like this is it like we have enough like we actually we have to move on at this point like we're wasting our time and we're wasting our money right now so he was like very much invested in like we have and Ray, they talk about this in the evil dead companion like one of the considerations Ramy has is like we have an obligation to make the money back for our financiers um and that's like not something you normally hear from a director you normally just hear like i just want to make my movie (laughs) midwestern nice guy like we people are relying on us yeah and i think because it's your neighbors because it's people in your community you might feel a bit more invested i know like campbell says he got his dad to put up like their summertime cabin as collateral to get like the last loan when everybody finally said there's no more money like bruce's dad was going through a divorce at the time so he was like well now that he's in this weakened emotional state hey dad what do you think about me like putting the cabin up for collateral to get this loan at this point so yeah that's what it took to get this movie done and look at them now yeah and now look at them exactly so we got to talk about cheryl in the tree rapes scene because okay. we have to. I think we have to. I think like <laughs> oh all right. All right, I guess. All right. So my understand it doesn't hold up. Like to me, like this is the one thing about the movie mm-hmm. that it just like watching it. And again, like watching this with my daughter, and she watched it with me again when I was re-watching it last night. And she's like, This is just why is this in here? She was like, This doesn't feel right in the rest of this movie. Um even as violent and over the top as the rest of the movie gets, um, it doesn't feel cruel. And this whole scene to me mm-hmm. feels like really cruel. Um, yeah. And Campbell's bio, like it's kind of a throwaway line, but it didn't sound like this was part of the original shoot, that it was one of the things that was done like once they got back from Tennessee and needed to add something um, to it. Like Ellen Sandweiss, when she talks about it, like she talks about how she didn't say no to doing it, but she also didn't really, she's like, well, I thought there'd be more fog. 
Um, I didn't think anybody would actually see this movie. And she didn't know like that penetration shot was going to go in there and how it's like, I know, you know she's not embraced it now, but she's kind of like learned to like not let it affect her as much, but also that like it, um, like watching it with her kids or like watching it with family when it premiered was like really, really hard. Yeah. It sucks. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I've heard her say that, like, they added that later. And when you watch it, like, I don't think that's possible. I think it's mm-hmm. possible that it was, like, a weird stop motion mm-hmm. thing that was done live. And she didn't really understand yeah. what they were doing and what that shot was going to look like when it was yeah. done. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't look like it's, like, a, you know, an optical effect yeah. of, like, a tree, tree branch later. And she's in that shot. Like, you can yeah. see her face. Yeah. I do see like I do see that it could possibly have been done later because it, it's hard to see her, but it does look like her hair might be different mm-hmm. in some of those close-ups. Um, mm-hmm. But I like it's hard for me to believe that that was happened later and she didn't know. But I could believe that it was like some weird yeah there's timing so much- on set that she didn't understand what was happening. She talked about it a few times. I feel like I watched her mention it at a panel in Hail to the Deadites, but I, mm-hmm. I'm blanking on exactly what she said, but it felt very much like, I don't know, I don't want to quote her because I don't remember what she said. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I feel like she talked about it a lot. I mean, it's a, it's a shitty scene. It's kind of like one of those things I just kind of choose to just like, okay, mm-hmm. like a couple of film bros in the, yeah. whatever. Maybe. And I and, think there, yeah. there are things like Ramey said, like the scene where, later on when um betsy baker is getting hit with like the um fake with with, like the pole basically by axe like on the drive back from michigan like ramey like looks at tabby's like we should have done that scene like naked like why did she you know it's just weird things like that and he's like a you know again 20 year old at the time like um and a few years later when he was interviewed like um promoting evil dead 2 he was asked by jonathan ross like do you regret it like he's like do you regret putting it in and ramey says like i do and when he's asked why he's like it was unnecessary and gratuitous gratuitous and a little too brutal and finally because people were offended in a way that i didn't my goal is not to offend people it's to entertain to thrill to scare make them laugh and not offend but then he goes like but you know I know a lot of 19 year olds that are stealing cars and murdering people not to make that comparison, but I think my judgment was a little wrong at that time. And to me, like, it's a kind of a broad leap to say, like, I shouldn't have had this scene in. it's pretty gross, but I could be out like hijacking cars and killing people. Like that's kind of, no, a I think he's list. just pointing. I, 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 from what you just read, it sounds more to me like he's making a comparison of like, young people yeah. do stupid things yeah, like yes. i was young and dumb and yeah do it today right. kind of thing but um, he did do it today like he did like the original script for the remake didn't have that in it and alvarez is like one of the producers said like where's my tree rape scene and that was added in after and i don't know if it was like uh it wasn't would it have been campbell but i don't know if it was tappert and i don't or i don't know if it was ramey but like that wasn't originally in there um, Wait, in the remake? Remake? In the remake, yeah. yeah. But, the, but when you see it in the remake, though, I mean, not that like I'm making excuses for it, but it's clear that it's what infects her with yes. the evil. Mm-hmm. Whereas, mm-hmm. like, you, I guess you could make that leap in the first movie, but it's never really yeah. 
you like you really can yeah. i mean if somebody explained it to you you'd be like oh well i didn't get that yeah I whereas, have, whereas yeah. in the remake when it happens it's like she's being impregnated with the right evil in the that scene thing. so it's almost right. like it's more yeah. part of the of the narrative hmm. yeah i get that and i know like um sanway she taught like this was a hard shoot for her like she talks about like running through the woods at two in the morning and getting and, and fi- like falling down a lot and finally being like enough is enough. And I know she said like Bruce Campbell was great, like always looked out for her, always like wanted to make sure she was all right. And she's like, but other people did it. And I think she's referring mostly to Tappert, who would say things like, I like when my actresses bleed, then I know I'm getting like my money's worth. And again, like oh stupid 20 year old speak at that point so um i think what separates this from like say like a stanley kubrick like torturing shelly duvall on the set of the shining is the fact that like every single person on the shoot ramey and campbell and tabbert included beat the shit out of one another like bruce campbell gets physically wrecked during like, i think they talk about how he has like divots of his ankle that are still not there from like shooting this movie from like getting tossed around so much. So not to excuse it, but um, yeah, I mean, I think your point is that like, yeah, it was a tough shoot all around and everybody. Yeah. <laughs> everybody and, got tortured. I think in her, in her instance, you know, it, unlike the other actresses, like she wasn't friends with those guys. No. And, and yeah. there's one way you can look at it and be like, Oh, well, like, that could be better, but like to have to do the kinds of things that she does in that movie as a woman in front of like dudes that you're friends with, I could understand being a little more difficult than if they yeah. were just like guys that you only knew as filmmakers and not guys yeah. that you went to high school with. Yeah. So yeah. That's a hard thing. So I did just, it, I think when you talk about this movie, it kind of has to come up. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but like it's embedded in the thing. Um, all right. Other things like the stop motion effects in this from like Tony, Tom Sullivan, um, fucking incredible. Like to me, like the best. Yeah. And it's bizarre to me. So like, yeah, Tom Sullivan does the stop motion. He does a lot of the makeup. He does a lot of the effects, all of the effects and makeup, I think for the first one and did the stop motion for these three movies. And then the fly too. like, those are his only credits. (laughs) (laughs) There's an interesting documentary made about him called, I think it's called Invaluable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Uh, I think I saw a quote that I grabbed. It was like, that's where it was cited from, but I didn't know it was a documentary. And it's, uh, he was an artist uh, and a sculptor and and an illustrator. And his wife went to college at the same time at MSU with Taper and Ivan Ramey. And so I think he would see like the fact that these screenings were happening. And so he went to one of them and that's where he met uh Ramey and Tappert and then I think he ends up uh meeting Campbell later but he ends up making a poster for one of their screenings illustrating the poster and then they end up hiring him to do uh makeup on within the woods and he just kind of like becomes their guy and he and he's I think what's interesting about him is that he's kind of an artist first and then like a makeshift effects guy. And I think it adds like a unique twist to all that. One of the things that comes out, and I think it's Josh Becker, actually, the documentary talks about how his original 
concept drawings that he came up with for all the makeups were all like organic to the woods. Mm-hmm. You know, they were like either animal-esque or like, you know, wood, you know, kinds of things. And then they got to Tennessee and in the house that they all lived in, like his workshop was the living room. And uh, apparently it's when Ramey saw all the drawings, he threw them all out. He said, no, this is not what I want it to be, but not having really ever directed a real movie before he's like well what do you want he's like i don't know <laughs> it's not this cool. <laughs> so it became very much a like you know trial and error working on the fly coming up with stuff and then Raymond be like yeah 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 that's that's what i want um why he ends up working on the fly too is completely unrelated but he ends up going to japan for some kind of like special effects seminar thing where he does and one of the guys one of the other makeup effects guys that is there is the guy who did the effects. I can't think of his name, unfortunately, for the fly and then directs the fly too. And okay. so he, they meet in Japan and they become friends. And that's why he ends up working on the fly too. Oh, okay. He, he, he ends up where he, he, he creates the book. He illustrates the pages in the book. He ends up doing the stop animation of the book for the mm-hmm. second movie in the, in the in, in that stuff and maybe even in the third movie uh and uh the stop motion stuff uh, he and i think the, like originally Raimi had just planned that they would like make like rubber versions of like balloons i think he and says they balloons. would def- they yeah. would deflate and he's like well let me no like all we need is someone in an audience making like a fart sound yeah <laughs> you know like like a wheezing balloon sound and then you know then you lose you're gonna lose the entire audience so he ends up getting this guy uh, bart pierce um and the two of them like hold up shop he lives on a cot in like the studio when not it not the student like that's not, not a real studio it's like a basement of somebody's house and uh when they get back to michigan and he and he just works like 18 hours a day and they sit here and they they do like these amazing stop motion things yeah. for the end of the movie. And it's just so grotesque. It's just like what really stands out is the grotesqueness of that. Those oh like just the rotting of it. And I think like the last thing that Campbell shot was like Ramy, like that last thing he gets splattered on him is a can of like elbow dog food. Yeah. They say, oh, yeah. So that to me is almost worse than like all of the caro, like the blood that's used in this movie. Because like, did it like Campbell's shirt like break at the end of this? Because it was so sticky and stiff with blood. That they're like, just, like traumatized from the blood. It. Yeah. Apparently, and yeah, it like fell apart. I love, I love um, blood. It's always something like I'll ask about if I'm given the opportunity. I always ask about blood. One of like the answers that haunts me is for possessor. Mm-hmm. I asked uh, Brandon Cronenberg about the blood they used and he was like oh it's some like secret recipe and he like couldn't even give me a name well no he gave me a name that's not true but he was like he learned it from someone else and it's mm-hmm. like some secret recipe where it like flows amazingly looks the most like blood but you can clean it up really quickly between takes so it's like some like, game-changing blood recipe mm-hmm. um but this one the took the old corn syrup and food dye and food coloring and added coffee to it yeah like that was his like contribution to blood effects and I love that because it does look super brown. Like I remember even when I was making my um, my uh, Ash Williams costume, I, I mean, I was doing Army of Darkness, but I was like, I don't know like what color this blood should be. And I kept making it like darker and darker, but of course it still looked like painted red. Um, but yeah, and apparently it was just like cold and sticky. And 
on the like traumatizing them, I asked Bruce Campbell. So speaking of, this is kind of a tangent, but speaking of interviewing Bruce Campbell, I was like the most nervous I've ever been for anything. And I was interviewing him for um, Ripley's Believe It or Not. And it was a round table and I was so scared and he's so scary. And um, we were like, basically told like, ask Ripley's questions, which like I wasn't prepared for at all and mm-hmm. didn't care about and <laughs> didn't want to ask about. Right. So people were like, talk to us about your favorite, believe it or not thing. And I was so intimidated. And there was like one interviewer who was being really like, was really like pushing him in ways that he didn't like. So he mm-hmm. was like not happy. And it was just like, and I was so scared and there wasn't a like go around thing. It was just like whoever speaks first. Yep. And it was just hell. I was like shivering. And so finally I was just like, Hey, tell me about your like favorite gore scene that you've ever shot expecting that I was going to like break through with this like bold horror question. And I was going to like change the tone of this interview. And he just like clammed up and was like, I hate shooting gore and I don't want to talk about it. Oh. <laughs> like, I was like, well, um but that's not exactly what he said he said um he said i'm not a gore guy so i don't have a favorite gore gore is a drag to me yeah blood is sticky blood is cold not fun sticks on all your clothes yeah i'm so over it so that's my like awesome cool answer from yeah you can see why he never wants to play the character of asher (laughs) it becomes with that was like please stop asking me to play this character like you know like i hate blood (laughs) so um yeah yeah all right um i that's one of the questions we were asked to like what's our favorite gore gag so i'm gonna leave a little bit out to kind of get to that but the Mm. last thing like i really love is like i love like the look of cheryl in this movie like when she's in the trap door um, yeah like the the, and they talk about like how they're completely blind when they're wearing those lenses how they don't just cover the iris but the whole eyeball Mm -hmm. so they're like we couldn't see shit when we're in those um but just like that scene where she recites like the cards and then turns around like to me it's like one of the great reveals in horror like absolutely fantastic reveal i love that so. it's so scary and i love i'm probably mixing things up in my mind between the first and second but like how the the chain just feels like it changes lengths every time mm-hmm. you see it like sometimes it's like she's probably got like a did. millimeter of space and then sometimes she's got like her whole like right. shoulders up or out she's you, like, you can ah. get out yeah, <laughs> yeah it, like it you can did. get out of that it probably did she could but squeeze it's surreal out. okay it's a surreal movie so it doesn't matter all right um let's talk a little bit about the release of this movie and specifically how like the really like the not the influence but the um kick in the pants that like stephen king gave this Mm -hmm. because i think like he was really championed this movie in a way that brought it that it brought it to the consciousness that maybe it wouldn't have otherwise yeah didn't he call it like his favorite scary movie or something the most ferocious original work of horror that he had seen in a long time, I think, after seeing it at the Cannes. And I know, Lindsay, you have like a little bit here about like the screening at Cannes. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so he was there at the Cannes screening and, oh, sorry, he called it his fifth favorite film of the genre. I read that wrong but he yeah he commented that he was registering things he'd never seen in a movie before um and he was very obsessive about it and just like you said the the most ferociously original film of the year which was used um for promo the ultimate pull quote stephen king on your like indie scary movie um pretty good 
And that's, good. you know, peak King. Like that's like just after like shining and Salem's lot and Carrie. like this is early in the career where that would have carried like definitely, well, it still would carry a lot of weight, but like you yeah. wouldn't have had as many things as he's like, you're now Stephen King is on Twitter. Like I was just going to say now he gives so many movies, good yeah. reviews on Twitter, but yeah. it's still will, cool. Every time I will say that like uh, Paul Tremblay, the author of like head full of ghosts um, does say that like Stephen, he's like local to us here. He's like local to our area. And he was, we were chatting once on a Telluride Horror, and he said, like, that tweet that Stephen King gave about Head Full of Ghosts, like, skyrocketed him. Like, mm -hmm. immediately the book sales went way up, and people were, like, way more interested. So I don't mean yeah. to downplay what he can do, but... Uh, he's still doing it. After, like, everybody saying no to the film, like, basically... Every they hit every distributor in New York. They went out to LA, and everyone's like, "We we don't want this." They run into in New York, Irvin Shapiro, who at that time would have been in the seventies. He had been working in Hollywood since I think like the nineteen thirties with RKO. He was like, would love to share. Like he would have a Picasso hanging up in his office that he traded a bottle of wine with Picasso for. Like it's a dude that had been around. Like this is a dude who sees. The picture and it's like you guys have something here i can sell this movie gets mm -hmm. them to change the name of the movie um you like you had said Lindsay, he is part of the cons film fest so he gets them to screen it out of competition start they start showing it at horror film festivals in europe and european crowds like eat it up like they're chanting they're stomping their feet they absolutely love this movie um Shapiro cuts a deal with New Line Cinema that actually is pretty beneficial to the filmmakers. It like hits 42nd Street and it makes like 685,000 in one week just playing in New York, which that's 1981 money at that point. Yeah. So that's kind of insane, like how many people paid to see The Evil Dead in just in New York in one week. But also just to like put in context, especially for like the Uber film nerds of like mm -hmm. the age of urban shapiro he what he was the guy like the distributor that like made the deals for like the nook of the north and like yeah of dr calicari oh, yeah. battleship and tenkin mm -hmm. i mean so like his his he goes back in distribution and, yep. and like the film business into the into the silent era yeah he was writing reviews for like the washington times and like in his teens like that's how much he wanted to be involved in the industry and um he was the guy that took the chance and not only took a chance on them, but like had the business savvy to have them cut like the best possible deal. So this movie goes on, you know, it obviously goes on to be like a massive success for its time um, and really launches the career of Raby and Campbell so much so that like when Ray and we'll talk about crime wave and we talk about evil dead too when that movie and you think about like a movie like co-written with joel Cohn of like ethan and joel Cohn, directed by sam raimi like if you told me in 2021 that's going to come out like line up and take my money but that movie like flops so so much so that like when that movie flops like shapiro has in the back pocket well we're going to do evil dead 2 now and then like the money starts rolling in to do that so all right. So before we get to our audience questions, I guess I'll end with like, what do we feel the legacy of the Evil Dead is? Like when we look back at this movie, like where is it in the pantheon? And what is its overall legacy? Well, it gave us Bruce Campbell. Yeah. <laughs> and yep. Star of such shows as Ripley's, believe it or not. 
and, and breaker breaker of Lindsay's heart <laughs> jack of all trades oh, worth it yeah made a great elvis mm-hmm. yeah well i mean i don't standing. think you'd have i mean surely filmmakers would come with uh, like similar aesthetics at some point but i i think he certainly influenced people like uh uh edgar wright you know and yeah and the like it, smash cuts and like and the, the montage smash cuts and all that stuff and, uh you know he uh the, i don't know i mean it, it's like, like the, the whole thing has been that, like it's like this kind of unique gem and yeah. not just horror but in cinema and yeah i think the like the ripples that it has made i don't know if we could really you know, point to all of them and be able to tell what they all are. I mean, I've always said that, like, I always think that, like, Night of the Living Dead is, like, probably one of the most important and influential, like, American films because of, like, you wouldn't have, you know, not not to mention, you know, aside from, like, Walking Dead, you wouldn't have... You know, think of like all the filmmakers that saw Night of Living Dead. So like, hey, I can make a movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I bet you can even get like Scorsese to talk about how like, yeah, I don't mm-hmm. know. I'm not seen that. Maybe I wouldn't try to make Mean yeah. Streets or whatever. Um, and I think like there's a generation of people that saw Evil Dead and did that too and yeah. thought that way too. Yeah, like for sure. I mean, aside from things like The Cabin in the Woods Legacy, I think the tape playing the, you know, the thing that mm-hmm. releases this demon legacy. I mean, I don't know, like, again, I, because I'll always keep talking about Saw, but like the idea of being creative and creating scares and how those things become long running, like shaky cam, did they invent shaky cam? Maybe not, but th- like the legacy of that is massive. And yeah, Bruce Campbell, like the whole lore and history that, you know, obsessive fans can pick up, like, pick apart he created a character that like um like ash kind of stands beside killers but he's not the killer in the Mm -hmm. series so like when you see collections of slasher sets you've always got jason michael and you've got like ash there and ash is the good guy yeah which is like i love like i think that's so cool and he's a good guy but he's like got the chainsaw and blood all over him all the time and created that he created a horror hero in, yeah. a way, in a way that no other kind of film has yeah. in, that, in that way and I've like seen people be like oh do you count him as like a final girl and it's like no he's not the final girl at all but like he's a horror hero which is such a different thing like mm-hmm. you know it's not it's you know Sydney's the final girl in Scream but it's a ghost face movie and evil, the Evil Dead movies are Ash Williams movies like what awesome <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah I mean, he also he gave I mean obviously there were kind of horror there were horror comics but he also Evil Dead 2 I think makes mm-hmm. takes takes horror comedy into a, into a direction into a level that I don't think had really existed yeah. before that at least not in, I mean you could there were zany, you know there's like Young Frankenstein that's like a zany yeah, I was gonna say comedy young Frankenstein. but but he ta- not with like so much blood <laughs> i was gonna say the blood as funny that's literally i was waiting for you to finish your sentence so i could be like making blood funny is the legacy mm-hmm. 
<laughs> oh, you know what? In this in this movie, like to the sh- we mentioned the Three Stooges, and I rewatched the short last night. It's one of my favorites. There's a sh- the, a plumbing we will go, and there were two specific shots from that short. Like it's where the Stooges play plumbers, and it has my favorite Three Stooges line where the butler's like it's the plumbers madam and they're wrecking the house and it's just this amazing <laughs> delivery um there's like two shots in that short where like there's water that fills up the light bulbs and then it comes pouring out of the electrical sockets and you see that in this first evil dead movie where like blood is filling the light bulb and pouring from the sockets and you're like it's straight from the three stooges and i just love how he's able to kind of work that in and obviously i think the physical comedy of the second movie in army of darkness like that stooges influence becomes so much more pronounced but yeah they have that here um and i'm someone that grew up like has very fond memories of like saturday morning watching the stooges with my dad and like quoting them and reading the script books and like the three stooges the story behind them it's, it's so tragic and like mo howard is such a just like a lonely tragic dude um but he created some of the funniest most enduring comedy and for Raimi to kind of like embrace that and put it in all his stuff to me is incredible um i will will also say from a filmmaking standpoint this is a perfect example of um i mean you didn't really talk a whole lot about post but like how important sound design let's do that you know and i'm thinking that let's talk about that because you talk a lot about that in your book with i'm going to mispronounce his name with um joseph laduca joseph laduca yeah he's he's in the the new book um Mm -hmm. but you know i I always feel like it's funny when you watch a movie even if it's low budget and you know maybe i mean my my day job is as an editor so Mm -hmm. i and probably like if something's out of sync, it annoys the hell out of me. <laughs> something could be like two frames out of sync. And uh, so, but like when I watch something, and so I don't think maybe some people don't know that like when something feels really cheap, it's often because of the sound design. Like, mm-hmm. and uh, they just like create like a beautiful, like sonic tapestry of noise <laughs> in this movie that just like fills it. And whether they're creating like these weird sounds of the force, um, Leduca's music is great for it. You know, it's a time where you get that transitional period where you have like Halloween, so you get the synth, but then, you know, we're s- still using traditional strings at that point. Yeah. Um, as far as the music goes, he talks about how, you know, it was at a necessity of the budget, but um, it was a, he did, he used a uh, string quartet. And then he added a contra bass, uh, which is a, a stand-up bass, but it's tuned an octave lower than a regular bass. Mm-hmm. So it's like super low. Yeah. And he talked about like that's how you get like a lot of oomph out of out of such a small section. It's hard to mic because the the, the tones are so different. And it, it's a it's a it's an ensemble that he's wanted to use a lot, but has never really been given the opportunity. He wanted to use it in one of the Chucky movies that he did with uh, Don Mancini, but after they heard the mock-ups, which were what he did on the set, they're like, that sounds good enough. You don't need to, you don't need to do anything else. And it's one of the reasons why he wanted to kind of revisit it and do like that new, like reimagined version of the score. Uh, part of that's also because for some reason, 
I don't know who owns the rights, but like it's impossible to release the original score again. Mm-hmm. And like that's why nobody's releasing it. Yeah. Perez Sarban put one out way back in the day. But Joe doesn't own the right. He owns the the music, like the written music, but he doesn't own the recordings right. of the so he can't put out the, the, the old score. So he did a kind of reimagining of it. Right. And then he also uses uh, some synth on it. He creates a patch. Uh, of sounds on a profit system that he rented from a friend of his. And he said he had this other like modular uh, role, like primitive Roland that didn't even have a keyboard. It's just like, he made my, he's like, I made the cat whining sounds with that. Right. <laughs> with that. Uh, he's fascinating and a super nice guy. Yeah, uh, He meets Raimi and uh, Tapper through a guy who makes films for like the state Michigan transportation. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, a- aspect of, of, of the state business. And the guy says like, so what do you want to do with this music thing? And he's like, well, I'd like to, I don't know, I'd like to someday make music for movies. He's like, well, I'm helping these guys raise money for post-production. We should go and talk to them. And there was Randy and Campbell. Wow. And uh, he says he meets them. Uh, they get along. They said, can you make scary music? He makes some sample music. He said their office was next to a magic shop mm-hmm. and they had action figures on the, on the windowsills. <laughs> He's like, it was like really like a clubhouse office. It, he might've been the first person outside of those three that actually saw the movie. Basically, yeah. Or yeah. you tell in your book, right? Yeah. He says he spots it, which the spotting session is, he said he, they didn't, he didn't know what a spotting session then because he didn't know what a spot, spotting session was. But spotting session is when the director and the, or the producer and both, or both sit down with the composer and they watch the movie and they say, okay, this is where I want music and this is the kind of music I want. And he said they, they watched the, he, he, they sat on the floor of his parents' den. He charged them a pop, quarter. <laughs> with popcorn. <laughs> and he showed him the movie and he showed mm-hmm. him the movie. Yeah. Um, and apparently because of technology and no money, you know, he, uh, and this is a recurring thing with composers in my books that were making low budget horror movies in the seventies and eighties that like, there wasn't really a way to do sync. So like he had like a quarter, three quarter inch tape that, uh, and, the, and like the, the player didn't have a toggle. So he just have to like rewind and then push mm-hmm. play and he could never cue it up correctly. And they would have these books called the Knudsen uh, book. It uh, was created by a guy whose last name was Knudsen. And it was, it would take um, frame rates and, a, and you could look up like how many, fr- like you had like X amount of beats per minute how that would calculate how many frames of film. <laughs> and that's how these guys would figure out how to sync things up was like looking it up in a book. Like, that's okay, amazing. it's 30, it's 24 frames a second. If I have this many beats per second, how, like, this is how much time I need to film. Wow. Um, that's incredible. And he talks a bit about how, cause Ramey is the one that come, like the other um, sound I associate with this is like the sound of, the thing rushing through the woods yeah and it's almost like oingo boing almost like boinging type of sound <laughs> yeah. and how did Ramey come up with that yeah i asked joe i said you know i asked him if he you know if he helped them if he created that sound because certainly guys like charlie clouser who do the song all the song movies he is all about like creating weird sounds and 
all those sonic textures that are almost just like ambient noise uh, within the film. Uh, he said he didn't create it, but he said it, it's Sam's voice through a, uh, a delay effect and a harmon a primitive harmonizer. harmonizer. Mm -hmm. And uh, then they just layered a bunch of sound effects and then some of the drones that he created on a synthesizer. And they just mm -hmm. like, layered all that stuff together and created those sounds. And it's awesome. such a creepy sound. Yeah. That and, and one of the things when I interviewed Campbell a hundred years ago, one of the things that we did talk about was that he is very much into sound. Yeah. And he was like the sound when the sound, he was like the sound editor on the film. Uh, he has like a, he has the collection of the original sounds. Mm -hmm. He brought them in to the cutting room when they did the remake and he placed in the wind noises from the original mm -hmm. film. I love that. And uh, in my first book, I talked to Alan Howarth, who was the sound, who did sound design for Army of Darkness. Mm -hmm. And he said, yeah, Campbell was like really hands-on. Yeah. He would come, he's like, give me a microphone. And he would make like, he would redo like this, uh, and yeah. like all those pain sounds. Uh, and, uh, you know, and the thing about, working with joe talks about working with those guys or anybody specific but since we're talking about even then like if campbell's in like the dub on the dubbing stage when you're like mixing he's like because it's bruce campbell and he's the producer and he loves sound like the sounds all the music is always going to be mixed low compared mm -hmm. to this <laughs> yeah. you're always going to lose that battle when the, the, um... when the sound guys on set on the stage there was a story in like the companion book that bill warren wrote how like campbell was on like leno the tonight show and leno was guest hosting to promote like the adventures of the briscoe county kid and like all leno wanted to do was talk about like well you do a lot of foley effects like let's do that and they brought him out like all the things like the celery the like um chick because they would use like stabbing into chicken for the sounds of stabbing and he was like i want to talk about this new show he's like no you you have jay leno you're doing the foley effects like um and i think there's like a clip of it on youtube but there's no audio with it ironically enough um and then also like Ramy recorded like three stooges sound effects from his tv cleaned it up and got it into the mix of the original Evil Dead, like he got some of that in there. So some of the, like the doinks, like things like that are the classic <laughs> Three Stooges. Awesome. Um, really quick for me, I'll do the legacy for myself. To me, this is one of the most, like when I think of like punk rock and like do it yourself and like the kind of like get in the van aesthetic, like to me, this is one of the most punk rock movies ever made. Um, just like completely doing it yourself, having a vision, but doing something with your friends. I mean, just like, that kind of thing where you're like, you're not just, you're doing it with people that you love to be around at that point. And you kind of torture one another for it. Um, what's interesting to me is I think when most people talk about the Evil Dead and why they, and Lindsay, you kind of hit on this way back at the beginning, they think about Evil Dead 2. Like mm -hmm. that's the movie that everyone loves. Like the wisecracking, the hand fight, the chainsaw on the arm. Um, that's what sticks in our memory when it comes to the Evil Dead series. But what's really amazing, like when you, all of the stories about this series come from this movie. And when you like read about like the making of Army of Darkness and Evil Dead 2, it's like, yeah, we made a movie. It was cool. That was it. Like that's literally, that's the story. Um, like we knew what we were doing by then. Like Bruce Campbell talks about working out to make part two. Like that's, that's, you know, like I ate a lot of chicken. Um, yeah. 
this is and they, like and they shot it in a high school that's yeah, like really that's awesome. amazing like the gym <laughs> yeah that's that's what's amazing um to me this is like one of the most punk movies like the story of like they would go to like find to sell the movie in new york and like bruce campbell who's a very attractive man like they knew he was very attractive so he would call a woman he knew in new york and say hey i'm in town do you want to get together and the woman would say yes and she would open the door and there's bruce but there's sam and rob and she's like, oh, I guess you're all staying over. And like <laughs> Raimi talks about in this interview, he talks about like Bruce, like literally fending off like the advances of this woman. Like he's like, no, I just want to go to sleep. I'm really tired. And like Raimi giggling the whole time. Like, yeah, it's it's a really, again, the, the interview, it's in my notes. It's um, the, the um, blah, 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 incredibly strange film show the first 30 minutes are about the first evil dead movie. And it's absolutely fucking hysterical. There's another interview he does in 1982. And I'm going to add some of the cuts to it in the show here. It's really like Raimi just cracking himself up the whole time, making like doing this interview as like a 20 year old kid, like promoting his movie and being this complete fucking wise ass. That's full of himself. It's really funny. <laughs> Tracks. So, all right. I know we got some audience questions and comments. I'll run through them very quickly because we are running a bit long and I want to be respectful of everyone's time. Um, from our Facebook group, which you can go to facebook.com, pod and the pendulum, Michael Forth asks, have you folks ever seen Evil the Evil Dead musical caught it in Vegas a few years back? And it was such an amazing time. So I have not. So has anyone here seen not. the musical? Yes. Yeah. Is I, I didn't I didn't see the one in Vegas. I hear that's one's no, a lot bigger than the old, yeah. a lot bigger than the like the original one. But I saw it in New York here. They mm -hmm. they did a I don't know, they did a, a string of dates a month or so mm -hmm. here in New York and I went to see it. Yeah. Sat in the sat in the splash zone. Oh I've been trying to get okay. <laughs> I, yeah, I saw it in Toronto. We did not sit in the splash zone. It was in a very small theater. Um, we were on like um, like benches. Like it was like super small. There, like your seat was like, you got like a bench row and you were just like butt mm -hmm. to butt with everyone beside you. And it is the hardest I think I've ever laughed in my entire life. Really? Um, speaking of the like blood is funny. Um, there's so much blood and you like, think that there won't be any more blood but you're wrong there's so much more blood than you think there's gonna be and it just made me laugh so hard like me and my friend Aaron, we were like hot, like we could not breathe like gasping for air howling just like with blood just dripping everywhere it's very great recommend. my recollection is I mean, it's been a really long time my recollection mm -hmm. is it's kind of like this fun hybrid of the first yeah it's, it's like it's the first two it's at least the first two i want to say all three smashed together um, and you kind of like notice it, like you think that you're watching the first and then as it, you're like, oh no, this is spilling over. Yeah. And then, yeah. So it's like all the movies smashed together really yeah. quick. I have not seen it. And now okay. I really want to see it. Just really recently, when you think there's no more blood, oh no, there's more blood. On there's more. <laughs> and you're just like, I need, okay. I oh need to see this. It's so good. It's uh, so good. From Maya Madsen, it's her, it's my favorite of the trilogy. I love how raw it is and groundbreak and the groundbreaking camera work. I also love how the final protagonist isn't who you expect. True. Like, I think we mentioned that. I thought Scott would mm -hmm. be it. It still creeps me out despite dated effects and sketchy acting. What? 
Uh, Agreed. Fully agree. Yes, you're right. Oh, and the final moment, that's my kind of ending. Absolutely. Like, I think Maya, you and I are on the same page. I think this is my favorite of the bunch. Yeah, it's my favorite of the trilogy. I've probably seen Army of Darkness more times because that movie is like the most watchable movie ever. But but I do think that the original is my favorite. And from Gene H. Keen, how did I not realize this was NC-17? It was unrated, and I don't know how you didn't realize that because I wasn't there. Yeah, but, can't, yeah. It's not a question I can answer for you. <laughs> yeah, they decided to release well. it unrated because it was doing yeah. so well. It was doing so well mm-hmm. as an unrated cut um, that they're like, why cut it down to an R? You know, so, and I think they made the right choice. Mm-hmm. Made it tougher to see in a wide release, but at the same time, it made it like that much more. And I think this was really like, a lot of the success was like due to video, not just like yeah, how it did in I was years, gonna, but I just gonna stuff. say like it came at exactly the yeah, right time really to did. be able to be successful because of the rise of VHS. Yep. For sure. I'll mention these really quick because we covered them during the show, but from Vegas at Viva La Vega with four A's at the end. Please just talk about how much of it leaked into his Spider-Man movies. We did. Thank you. Um, for Mike Vanderbilt, do you qualify Ash as a scream queen? No. No. Or a hero, not a scream queen. Maybe yeah. in the first one. Yeah, maybe. And he screams a lot. He does. <laughs> he definitely um, blossoms into a hero yeah. by the end of the second one. Vanderbilt's second question, is the remastered score superior to the original? I'm guessing like- that you're saying the... Um, Evil Dead Reimagined, which came out on Mondo, which I did not know until it existed until I read your book, Blake. Um, I would say Blake is the guest to answer that question. I'm just going to say, yes, it is. I listened to it literally all day today at work in my office while prepping, prepping for the show. I mean, doing my work. So, (laughs) yeah, well, it, uh, look, he has the benefit of like creating it in hindsight. Mm -hmm with technology that didn't exist then he it's like he keeps some of the mainstays of the original score like the love theme Mm -hmm. or i games i think it's called um so like the greatest hits are there but then he kind of like reimagines like how he would do it now and how that really came about which i would have loved to have seen is that they did it live to the movie um, I mean, I don't think that I don't think the record is a, is a live recording of that experience, but they he did a score for live screenings, and uh, I wish they would release that as like, a special feature. Where you get I, would, I would love a release of this movie, like where in one of the audio tracks is all the dialogue stripped out because it almost is a silent movie. Like, there's not a lot of dialogue mm-hmm. in this, no. like just give me the Foley effects and give me the score and give me the reimagined score. And I would, that's honestly would probably be the cut that I would go to. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think it would be. That's perfect. kind of the like stooges of it all. Right. Like it's mm-hmm. pretty, there's not a lot of chatter once yeah. the actions. One, one thing I, I will, if anybody's interested in the reimagined uh, score as a release, he, he also ends it, I think with a few of like, some some of the fantastic themes from yeah. Army of Darkness, but mm-hmm. in that kind of like string ensemble yeah. version instead of the full orchestra. Yeah, so that's pretty, cool. When you say kind of the stu- one of the, the stooginess of it, what do you mean, Lindsay? Oh, I just meant like the like silent part of it, like mm-hmm. where like once the gags happen, it's all about the like 
chokes and squeaks and blinks um that like yeah what you're saying about like how there's not a lot of dialogue and i feel Mm -hmm. like that's really similar it's like yeah the stooges yell a bit like it's much more so i know the stooges are known most for their physical comedy Mm -hmm. but i will say as a stoogeologist okay uh, I will say that like they actually have some of the wittiest repartee and some of the most clever dialogue in comedy. And I think because they're just so known for like eye pokes and slapping one another, a lot of that gets lost. Um, I don't know. Like I, oh, I, I could whack and I don't want, I could whack <laughs> nostalgic on the three stooges for hours. Cause it just reminds me of my dad who's no longer with us, but I'm Aww. sorry. So, you know, Oh, he's just, he's hiding in California. So, no, yeah, he's, he's he is dead. so my favorite joke is like, I played hide and seek with my dad once he hid for 20 years in California. He did not do that. That's not true. I just think it's a funny joke. Okay. Um, all right. Not to bring everybody down. Maybe we can. No. So like, tell us about score to death too. Or the score to death series in general like what was the inspired you to kind of like get behind and start interviewing all these artists it was a love for john carpenter and goblin really mm-hmm. <laughs> it's what start was what started it mm-hmm. i had i had been writing about horror and movies and music for a long time i, I like i said i interviewed bruce campbell before way before that but i also wrote for a blues website where I got to interview a lot of like my guitar heroes. So uh, the the idea of interviewing people and musicians seemed uh, doable for me. And it really was just like, there was information I wanted to know and I couldn't find it. So Mm -hmm. I thought who better to find out than me. And so the first book came out in 2016, uh, Scored to Death, and it has 14 interviews with composers who have made significant contributions to the horror genre, including John Carpenter, Christopher Young, who's worked with Ramey a bunch. We talk about Dragon to Hell in that book. Um, some of the guys from Goblin, Fabio Fritzi, who scored the Fulci's movies, uh, Joseph Bashara, who does the Insidious and Conjuring, 14 amazing composers. When I finished that book, I wanted to do another one right away. And my publisher said no. So. Uh, I started the podcast, scored the mm-hmm. podcast, and then uh, a couple of years after the first book, I got the opportunity to do the second book. And so, what the made new the book, publisher change his mind? I, I, I mean, that's a long story, but in a nutshell, um, I was pitching another book to a different publisher, and uh, that publisher knew I did score to death. And he said, you know what I really want is a book of interviews with horror movie composers. And I was like, I already did that. <laughs> I said, ah, would you want another one? Is that what you're asking? He said, yeah. Uh, part of my deal was I had to make sure that the first publisher really didn't want to do it before I could move mm-hmm. on to another publisher. And when I asked, they said, you know, if you want to do it here, we would do it. Mm-hmm. So, um, so the new book, Square to Death 2, More Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers, features 16 in-depth interviews with amazing composers, uh, including Joseph LaDuca, who we're talking about today, uh, Charlie Clauser, who did the Saw movies, um, some Japanese composers who work with, uh, like Takashi Miike, Koji Endo, uh, who works with him. Uh, just uh, some amazing interviews bear mccreary 
uh, Michael Abels, who did Get Out, an incredibly detailed interview about the music for It Follows with Disaster Piece. Wow. And uh, so uh, I'm very proud of both the books and how they came out, that my publisher does a great job with, mm-hmm. the, uh, with, with actually creating them physically. It's, I mean, it's a wonderful read because I am someone who loves music but knows nothing technical about it. Like I can't, and I think what I really love about, and I think this is, you know, again, like I don't mean to blow smoke up your ass here, but I think like what you do like a wonderful job of is like being so conversational that anybody who has an interest in this can pick it up and get so much from it. But at the same time, it doesn't get mired in the weeds. Like I never feel like there's a moment where I'm like, I'm in over my head and I don't understand this right now. That was definitely a conscious effort when I did the first book. And I almost didn't do the first book because I was worried about that because mm-hmm. other books and interviews with composers that I was reading at the time, um, kind of looking for that information that I said I couldn't find, uh, were really kind of technical into music theory. And mm-hmm. So I was really scared about doing it. I said, well, if this is what these books are like. I'm not sure I'm the guy to write this kind of book. But I figured I would do a, a I figured I'll do like two or three and see how they come out and if, I don't think they're good enough for a book. I, you know, I have relationships with like Fangori and mm-hmm. Dread Central and all these places. I'm sure I can get it, at least on the internet. Uh, thinking most composers would say, no, I asked like seven people and they all said yes. So mm-hmm. I was like, oh, well, I guess all I'm right. doing this I mean, now. cool. <laughs> so uh, Harry mm-hmm. Manfredini, who did the Friday the 13th books, mm-hmm. was the first interview for the first book. Mm-hmm. And where do you find the cutoff? If, if there's a part three, do you get to the point where you're like, instead of being greatest composers, is it's like, it's the pretty good. Like it's the, <laughs> well, you know, you know there's, the beauty of it is there are so many great composers. Mm-hmm. You know? um, there was obviously, there was this time, there were some people that declined to be in it. There were some people mm-hmm. that just didn't work out. Um, so there are definitely people I would love. There's mm-hmm. certainly more. One of the things about the new book, was was great was that i got to include people who kind of came to the forefront since the first book like michael abels who did get out and it follows came out like as i was finishing the first book so Mm -hmm. um it's there's a there's a few more of what i would call more contemporary composers Mm -hmm. in this book but uh so there's always going to be new great new greatest composers (laughs) of the genre so we can always tackle those guys yeah and gals. Holly would, Amber Church, wonderful uh, composers in this book. Who would uh, you say currently that's maybe not listed in your book, but like who's working in the genre currently that whose work like excites you? Like maybe someone you haven't had a chance to speak to for the book or your podcast yet, but who's worth, who's do, doing some really exciting work right now in the genre? Uh, I mean, I, I've, look, I've been blessed to interview 30 composers between mm-hmm. the two books and then even more for the podcast. Uh, so uh, there are so many ones. One, will I, I will say, I, someone I would love to interview who, who was almost in this book and scheduling just never worked out. And I, I came to the point where I just had to say, like, I need to, like, mm-hmm. I need to hand it in. <laughs> Sorry, it was Marco Baltrami, mm-hmm. who did the screen movies, but yeah. uh, continues to do great work in horror movies, but yeah. also in tons of other genres. Yeah, excellent. So where can our listeners find Score to Death and Score to Death 2 right now again? Uh, They're both available on Amazon from other book retailers. And uh, 
you can get them signed for me directly at scoredtodeath.com and I'm on social media at scoredtodeath. And I know that there's like an ebook for the first move for the first book. Is there going to be an ebook option for score to death too at some point? I believe there is. I'm pretty sure there is. I don't know what, what's taking okay. so long, but the ebook didn't the ebook for the first book came out pretty long mm-hmm. after the paperback was then. Yeah. So there will be eventually. So yeah. if that's your thing, just hang in there. <laughs> okay. And where can our listeners find you? If they're not following you already, where else can our listeners find you right now? Uh, just uh, social media and uh, at Score to Death. And I will be uh, very soon, I'm going to start hosting a thing called Score to Death Radio for mm. the Cinematic Sound Radio Network, mm. where I'm going to play. Oh. I'm going to play DJ for an hour and mm-hmm. uh, play movie cues. Focus That's on So, yeah. I used to do a show called Cuts from the Crypt for a different network. Mm-hmm. Um, that no longer exists and that's why i stopped doing it but uh some kind of score to death radios coming very soon cool. and i know that like saturday night movie and i say it right saturday night movie sleepovers i always feel like i missed two words up there <laughs> yeah it's a long time so saturday night movie sleepovers i know it's been on hiatus since the fall but there are six years worth of shows that are on there like bi-weekly shows right yeah every two weeks like clockwork never took a week off excellent so i, would, I mean we took the week in between the two weeks but right we never, we never missed an episode so i would definitely so there's, there's hundreds of episodes up there and uh and who knows hopefully uh in the not too distant future we'll be back do you have a favorite like, i know when people ask us like i'm like alien like when we talk about like our show i'm like alien elm the rest is history yeah and i go the rest we can just toss no like i like when people ask like what is like your the your favorite show you've done i'm like i would i would for us i'm like i would check these out um when you look back i know look with six years there's a lot of them like do you have like one or two where you're like this is what we're if you want to hear us at our best like this is what we're all about uh you know i think our our Escape from New York episode's pretty good because I read the novelization, so you get mm-hmm. a lot of weird insight that's yep. in the novelization. That's not that was that was like our niche was like yep. we would read the novelizations in yep. addition to the movies. Um, I love it's a re- it was a really early episode, but I really like our Black Christmas episode. Um, but that was that was back when the show was only an hour long, and mm-hmm. then uh, I don't know the. I have to ask. Our Warriors episode is really good. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of the ones that we, when we have a, a, when there's a rich background like Evil Dead, for instance, that's mm-hmm. that's kind of when we were at our best. So, uh, I'd say Warriors is a, is a fan favorite. People really liked our cruising episode. Mm-hmm. Which had, it's a weird sleepover. But yeah. <laughs> it really is. Like that's you don't want the parents coming downstairs. <laughs> what are you watching? You know. <laughs> Sorcerer, another freaking movie. Those, those are good episodes. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, right now. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, and we would love to have you back on again. You know, if you have any, anything new to promote, great. Or if you just want to come hang, absolutely. The always door, is always, about door is always open. <laughs> so I appreciate it. Thank you. So, Lindsay, what do you have in the works right now? Um, let's see. What do I have in the works? You know, same old. Follow me on Twitter and I'll talk about it okay. on the internet. 
um, at Smash Travis. You know where to find me. Okay. On a scale of one to 10, Spiral, how excited are you right now? I, Spiral is going to make me like shatter into 10 million pieces. I don't know mm -hmm. how, but it will. I'm are you going to smuggle yourself over the border? So you I can honestly don't know what I'm going to do. I'm like sick about it. I think about oh. it all day. <laughs> Every day. Spiral, Lionsgate, whomever is in charge. Okay. I'm asking you, begging you. Don't forget so, about me. <laughs> do not forget about Lindsay. Unfortunately, unfortunately, my interview with Charlie Clouds, the book was due before Spiral was originally oh. supposed to come out. So we didn't get that far. But four mm. fans of this soft series we go oh. we go pretty in depth with uh, the music that's so exciting because i'm obviously um i mean it's ten, ten, tangentially related um the fact that in the first two spiral trailers we get that like original score but in the long one we don't and i'm like to me that's very suggestive of a specific drop that's gonna happen like something's gonna be revealed when we get the score mm. drop and it's like all i think about all the time is when is that score gonna drop in spiral what's gonna happen <laughs> that they're gonna drop it yeah i know well, what i think um <laughs> yeah oh yeah i'll probably cry about it it'll so, be sometime in the year like 2023 by the time i get to see it but <laughs> oh, don't say that don't say that so i'll cry be. about that i can't see it and then when i do see it i will also cry because so. you're just so happy to see it mm -hmm. oh mm -hmm. So for me, you can find me over at Mike underscore Snoonian, also Pod and Pendulum over on Twitter. You can join our Facebook group, facebook.com, Pod and Pendulum. And you can hear my other show, Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast, where we cover uh, mental health through the, genre, uh, through the lens of genre films. As we enter this month, I believe we are covering, we just wrapped up Narcissism. And we are now like getting into like episodes that cover like the history of like residential treatment for mental health. So mm. that will be interesting because like it's going to be a different skill set of research that I'm used to kind of looking into that. So definitely looking forward to putting my foot in my mouth. So listeners, um, if you haven't already, starting at two bucks a month. Join our patron at patreon.com, pod in the pendulum. You get a bonus episode every month. But, you know, you've heard me reference things like the score to death two book, the evil dead companion. Your money is what funds it, basically. So we can actually go deep into these episodes. Like you kicking in the money through the Patreon is really what funds us, like spending the money on the bonus materials and kind of like going more and more into the weeds and hopefully in a way that you love. So, Said it before, I'll say it again. Are we worth like the price of a cup of coffee a month? I would say we are. So $2, $5, $10, those are the tiers. There's a much longer pitch for the Patreon somewhere in this episode, um, but I'll just leave it there. In the meantime, the easiest way that you can help our show that costs you not even a single penny is you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. So every other week, we're right in your feed Monday morning for your commute. Make sure you rate us with a five-star rating because that helps. Leave us a review, couple kind words, couple sentences. It goes a huge way to people finding the show. Um, I think I said this to you, like Lindsay off air earlier, like we're doing fewer episodes than a year ago, but we're kind of diving a bit deeper. But like in March... 
we did three fewer episodes than a year ago and we doubled our downloads and that's because of the word of mouth and you like being just super supportive of us so we really appreciate that um Lindsay and i have mapped out all of the franchises we're covering through i think like the first quarter of 2022 at this point so yeah get on that gravy train we're a biscuit train with gravy wheels i don't know it's late i'm very tired very tired Um, and we'll be back in two weeks heading back to that cabin with evil dead 2 the movie